Uh, can you think of, a, especially being over 50, can you think of a time, uh, your years on the planet, where other white people have come to you to share racist jokes? If, show, if so, uh, if you remember, can you share any of the racist jokes if you've heard any? I have, I have heard racist um, things from white people before. I think maybe the most memorable at this moment I can think of is, and this kind of might ring a bell because it was with a, a famous racist person, was um, when I was younger, I lived in Southern California, and I used to go to a gym called Barlow's Gym in um, Torrance, California, and a lot of police officers would go to that gym. And one of them was named Mark Furman, and he used to talk about things with other police officers, like, um, you know, very kind of derogatory about African Americans, like that, you know, people would get killed over the last people a piece of fried chicken in a refrigerator. And so being exposed to that years before he became kind of famous or notorious, you know, for his involvement with the O.J. Simpson murder trial, um, I, I knew who that person was, and I knew kind of, you know, what he, how he was responding to some of those questions. I had heard his bantering with, you know, other police officers who also, in many cases after he left, were kind of disgusted by the kind of things he said. And, um, yeah, you know, you, you encounter those people, and one of the things that you learn um, in life is that people who are kind of more overtly racist just assume that the people around them are as well. Uh, sometimes people don't say anything to them, you know, kind of face-to-face because sometimes they're just shocked or sometimes, you know, there are age differences or power differences. But, um, you know, that that kind of encounter happens, you know, more frequently than people expect. Sometimes it's more subtle. But um, that's a great example of when that, that type of thing happens. So, yeah, I've heard... Of course, I've heard people make, you know, what people refer to as off-color jokes or even racist comments. But, um, you know, sometimes you have opportunities to kind of shut it down, and other times you just kind of get away from those people. I think more often than not, people just avoid those people. Wow. (laughs) I don't get to tell my Mark Furman story that often, but it actually happened. Mark G. E. D. Furman. I cannot. Yeah. Ah. That's when I was in high school. So, you know, I was a younger kid then. Man, that is a historic moment. The kind we have asked many, 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 many white people over the years, Dr. Silverman. Have you heard racist joke? Because I love, you know, kind of deconstructing what's said in the jokes and all that. I think you can learn so much. They're so important. So many times white people will say they've heard a racist joke, but they can't remember. Or, yeah, I've heard we've even had a white person. Say, I've heard thousands of them. But no, I don't remember. Can't share. But very rarely do we get someone to actually go ahead and share a joke with us, much less. Oh, yeah, I remember that time Mark Furman. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Mark Furman. And even <laughs> Mark Furman before the trial. 
So when all of this starts, Orento James Simpson, and then they say this guy's going to be on the stand, and he goes back. F. Lee Bailey was a guest on our program. They have the exchange. Have you ever said nigger and all of that? You watched all of this and were like, I think I met that guy. Oh, I know who he was. You, you, yeah, you remember some people forever. And so you already knew, like, uh-oh, that guy does say nigger and jokes and are like, uh-oh, he lied. Like, you knew all that immediately. Uh, yeah, I knew that uh, his his testimony wasn't believable to me based on my experience. Wow. Based on your experience with him, do you think he might have fabricated some evidence in the case against Mr. Simpson? I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if something like that did happen. <clears throat> but I don't know anything about how he actually conducted himself on the job because I didn't have the misfortune of working with him. <laughs> I cannot believe it. I can everything leads back to OJ Simpson. So guilty. We can't free OJ. In a jail cell, a tiny jail cell, OJ can't sleep tonight. No white women, he'll use his left hand, and then he'll use his right. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, August 29, 2022. So I have been told, we'll be back later in the week, I will give out the details. For 13 years, it took us a little while to get rolling, but man, no one in the universe has better introductions for their program than the context of white supremacy today I could have had my pick OJ Simpson wins every time our broadcast for today buddy we have been here for well over 13 years context of white supremacy one thing we have talked about from day one racist jokes buddy 
Man, oh man, our program for today, that's a whole lot of different ways that I could give it to you. Like we were supposed to chat about this cosmically aligned. We were supposed to talk about it, just was supposed to be. I could say that for a lot of reasons, even just looking at the references, which is something that I've talked about doing for a while. Reading is more important than watching television. When I read books, check the references. Let's see. For this one, I'm not even saying this is exhaustive. I'm just saying I kind of got tired at a certain point of, all right, so a whole lot of people that he references in the book that we're going to talk about today have been guests on the cow. So this is the short list up to the point where I got exhausted. Charles Mills, The Racial Contract, 2009. Toon Van Dijk, D-I-J-K, September 2011. Joe Fegan, some of you who are, if you were here early, may have heard a little bit of his visit with us, March 2010, Two-Faced Racism, very constructive book. France, Windance Twine, June 2011. I had a good snicker about that one because she's mentioned a few times in the book. Maybe I'll tell you about that one if anyone reminds me. Uh, Frank Wilderson, the third two-time guest. A.C. Thompson, don't think that I forgot the significance of today, August 29. August 29, don't think Gus T. forgot. That means something, especially in the Northwestern Hemisphere, and especially for someone who says regularly, Katrina is also one of our bits of signature counter-racist work over the years. A.C. Thompson is referenced in the book today, but he's not referenced for what we talked with A.C. Thompson about. We spoke with A.C. Thompson about the white vigilante violence that followed Hurricane Katrina and the levee breach, August 29, 2005. And even there, if you watch the documentary film, Welcome to New Orleans, you will hear and see racist jokes and it's the best presentation because it's a gang of white people the floodwaters haven't even receded they're having a barbecue picnic if you will and they're telling jokes bragging about killing black males the documentary is called Welcome to New Orleans. Maybe you can watch that for the 17 year, I won't say anniversary, but 17 years since. That's what we talked to A.C. Thompson about. 2009, May. Mark Totok, Mark Potok, just because they mentioned the Southern Poverty Law Center, although I always give them the side eye because they had that big report some years ago about how they practice racism, white supremacy against their staff, but Either way, Mark Potok, 2010, and that's the point where I got tired, like, wow, we have done a lot of work for 2000, 2009 and 2022. Lots of folks have stopped through here, many of them referenced in the book that we will chat about today. And even with all of that, all of the folks that we've talked about, racist jokes, Dr. Joe Fegan, we spent about 15 minutes talking about racist jokes when he was with us back in 2010 in addition to we have probably accumulated about a hundred we've probably accumulated hundreds plural of white guests 
where we have asked them live on the spot, can you tell us the racist joke that you've heard? I humbly submit if I was a white person with our record, I may have even gotten a quote like, wow, that Gusty has done so much work on racist jokes. Wow, we let's at least see what he thinks. But I am the Rodney Dangerfield of racism, white supremacy, no respect, no respect, no respect. The audio segment that we started today, that was one of the times that we asked a white guest, share a racist joke. Dr. Mark M. Silverman, he was with us just last month. Mark G.E.D. Furman, and that is mentioned exactly in the book. We will discuss today the souls of white jokes. Got this from one of the folks on our social media page. You know, I hate social media. They normally have lots of racist jokes there, but I did get this from social media where they said, man, you talk about this all the time. You've got to talk to this guy, right? Man, oh man, our guest for today's broadcast wrote this fantastic book. Thankful to have him on the broadcast to chat it up. He is a professor of sociology at the University of Laverne in California. Joining us live, our guest, Dr. Raul Perez. Uh, let's see. Dr. Perez. Make sure I get the correct line here. Bingo. Are you with us, Dr. Perez? Hi, uh, Gus. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the uh, you know the introduction there. And uh, I think I need to have a follow-up chapter here just looking at the stuff that's in your archives. 13 years, I can only say, number one, Dr. Fegan, 2010, we did chat for about 15 minutes about racist jokes, and mm-hmm. then, whew, one of the, once I'm dead, that's the way they'll do it, like, oh my gosh, he has about 15 years of asking white people about racist jokes, let's look at their responses, yes, look yeah. at their responses, whew. Before we get yeah, to the book, that's a great. Yeah. I'm sorry, sir. That's a, that's a that's a great resource right there in, in terms of just the content we'll be talking about today. For sure, for sure. For folks who are listening in, this might be their first time hearing uh, about all of your work, uh, Doctor Perez. Uh, anything that you would like to tell them about who you are and the work that you do down in California? Yeah, no, I mean, thanks for the opportunity to, um, you know, to be on your show. I mean, uh, yeah, and you're doing some incredible work, and you've had some really influential people on your show, people whose work I've looked to uh, to really think about, you know, this phenomenon of, of racist humor. So, so it's, it's um, yeah, it's big shoes to fill to follow up um, with some of these some of these scholars you've had on on your show. Um, and, uh, like you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Joe Fagan's work has been really influential and helped me think about, you know, what racism, uh, racism is more generally, but how it's manifested through humor. Um, and certainly t- several of the other folks that you've discussed, um, earlier, you know, the uh, work by the, the Charles Mills, also very influential. So, you know, here over in, in, um, in California, this has been, uh, a major issue too that I've been paying close attention to, uh, at least over the last decade, and and really seeing that that this 
that this phenomenon of racist humor is, is one that's playing out in, in various social contexts and social arenas, um, in entertainment, obviously, and historically. Um, you know, you, you're mentioning uh, Mark Furman earlier, you know, the LAPD. So, you know, one of the chapters in the book is looking closely at the, you know, the use of, of racist humor within the context of law enforcement. So what is it doing there? Um, and then also just, you know, paying attention to this kind of humor, you know, just kind of coming of age right here, growing up in California, growing up, growing up in Los Angeles, in what was predominantly uh, a Latino, Mexican-American and, and uh, African-American, uh, um, you know, city, or at least the parts of the city that I, that I grew up in. And, you know, some of the jokes that you were mentioning earlier, I mean, these were jokes that I encountered as a teenager, right, from, you know, friends on the playground or, you know, friends, you know, hanging around at a party after school somewhere. Um, so, so, so these jokes have been kind of uh, on the back of my mind for a very long time. And part of my interest was in trying to think about, well, what do they do? You know, what are they, uh, how are they connected to larger social social issues? And, um, and why isn't there more written about what it is that they do, right? Um, you, you have some guests that have talked about this phenomenon, but uh, part of why I began to study it more closely is just to, to really dive deeply into this, um, you know, the, this issue in, in, in much greater depth. We will try to share as much as we can with uh, our listeners and ask some questions, read a few passages, encourage folks to check out a copy of this book, especially if you are cows listeners like, whoo, my goodness, what have we been talking about all this time? What is it? humor is not context free. Oh, oh context of white supremacy gee whiz uh for folks who have not seen a, a visual of you uh dr perez you already told us i feel like but you are a non-white male is that accurate yes i'm a chicano you know mexican-american grew up in los angeles grew up in i grew up in south la grew up in um uh you know, we moved up a lot around when i was a kid but largely within the areas of south los angeles or what used to be called south central um, in Watts, I, you know, I, I lived for a long time in Watts. I still have family who lived there. Um, East Los Angeles, you know, so I pretty much grew up in uh, black and brown L.A. Um, and so a lot of my you know, early upbringing definitely influenced my sort of larger social uh, and political worldview. Kobe Bryant Day, Kobe Bryant Day. Okay. Uh, I would have had much more emphasis if we were talking about any. Oh, I could have done it anyway. Kobe Bryant Day. That's the only reason that I said that. Kobe Bryant Day. The lawsuit was the same day as Kobe Bryant Day where they were making jokes and sharing the pictures. But live and die yeah, in L.A. Yeah. indeed. Um, all right. Uh, yeah. Our definition. We always uh, start our broadcast with our guests. Uh, racism, white supremacy, so important. What do we mean when we say that the definition that I use for both terms, racism and white supremacy, I use those terms as synonyms. The definition is a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. 
Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? I mean, definitely, if you look at some of the most influential, you know, uh, social and political theorists on the question of race, uh, that that certainly would be the consensus. You know, I, I think it was W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, when he's talking about racism and, 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 and whiteness, he just says, you know, whiteness is the idea that, you know, that you can own the earth, you know, forever and ever. Amen. I, you know, I'm paraphrasing that, but that was, that was Du Bois and sort of thinking about you know, what, what what is racism? How is it connected to whiteness? Um, how is it connected to colonialism? How is it connected to empire? Um, how is it connected to, you know, to capitalism? How is it connected to economic inequality and economic exploitation? So certainly when, when we think about the history and development of this of this concept or this category of race, it's embedded in the, you know, reconstruction of a sort of racial order where, you know, whiteness was seen as, you know, superior to the racialized peoples of the rest of the world. Um, and then not only was it an idea, but it was an idea that justified a practice that was already happening for a few centuries before, you know, uh, you know, white European uh, scientists began to classify peoples of, you know, the so-called third world, you know, in very sort of negative ways um, in contrast to the descriptions of, you know, white, you know, Europeans. Um, you know, this is happening in the 17 and 1800s by, you know, Swedish zoologists and botanists and French zoologists and botanists. Uh, but colonialism was happening for already you know, two plus centuries before, you know, ideas and theories and, and the science of race emerges, you know, colonialism um, had already been practiced for, for, for a long time. So, and, and if you look at the history of colonialism over the last 500 years, it certainly is a history in which, you know, colonization is happening in one, one in which, you know, sort of white European empires are seeking to dominate the globe you know, socially, politically, economically, culturally, um, and are structuring the world in, you know, what then begun, begins to be called, you know, white supremacy. And the idea that whiteness is supreme, whiteness rules. And, you know, and then from there, we begin to have the cultural sort of legitimation of white supremacy, right? The cultural legitimation through laws that say, you know, these are the sort of uh, rules that white society follows. These are the rules that are going to control non-white society, right? Uh, so the laws begin to reinforce that social structure. Uh, the political arena begins to reinforce that social structure. But then also the culture begins to reinforce that social structure. And part of what I look at in the book is looking at humor, jokes, as deeply embedded in the culture of a, of a society. So here in the book, I'm looking at the racist humor of U.S. society over the last, you know, two centuries or so, and, and connecting that culture, racist humor as, as a cultural expression, but it's a cultural expression that is reflecting the social structure of that society. And what was the social structure of the society that became the United States? Well, it was one of, you know, plantation slavery, you know, racism, white supremacy. Um, and so that the culture then that is emerging, the blackface minstrel show, 
that is showing you just how inhuman or backward, you know, the black caricature is on the on the comic stage. It's reinforcing the notion that these people are subhuman, these people are backward, these people are inferior. Um, and of course, early on, the way that the shows themselves were structured, you know, only 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 freed white persons could attend the shows, you know, uh, and the nature of the show was let's make fun of you know, black people. Let's make fun of the people, you know, who are on the plantations who, you know, their natural place in society is to be on a plantation, is to be, you know, slaves. Um, and this was done to comedic effect. So, so yes, yeah, so very much so when we think about racism and we think about white supremacy, I think it, it's a fair point to think about these as, as in a sense, synonymous. But I think also we need to think about the way that peoples of color also adopt these kind of worldviews and can practice them as well. So how do people of color begin to be themselves mouthpieces for reinforcing uh, these racial structures and these racist um, ideologies and ideas? Context of white supremacy again, our guest, uh, Dr. Raul Perez. Uh, we're talking about his book, The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy gave our uh, response uh, my definition of racism white supremacy actually before I even get into uh, some of the great content in your book try to be scholarly here even though I get no respect Rodney Dangerfield of counter racism <laughs> I looked at your uh, report years before the book came out learning to make racism funny in the colorblind era stand up comedy student performance strategies and the reproduction of racist jokes in public wowzers and i even had some help from uh listeners to nab this report quickly so i didn't have to waste a whole lot of time but oh. wow uh yeah. even i guess for context i worked at a black comedy club in atlanta georgia pause for richard brooks ahmaud arbery Catherine Johnston, folks can look her up, Catherine Johnston, and even today, Jerry Blassingame, $100 million settlement. Atlanta police tased him. He is paralyzed for life, will need round the clock care. So that $100 million is because of the medical expenses that he sustained or bills that he now incurs daily because of Atlanta police black male privilege there, I guess, but I was a black or employee at a black comedy club where there was only one white person who worked there. And most of the time, zero white customers, all black people. Most of the time uh, I looked at this report. Wow. This is stunning. I even wish there had been more of this in the in the book. Just a, a quick snippet, and then you can give us more details. Because I'm oh my gosh, you're right. This is on uh, page four. Well, this is in a journal article, so it's on page four ninety four, but page twenty four of the report uh, that, as suggested by former Cal's desk, yes, uh, Toon Van Dyke and others, they are intended to save face. For whites in particular against accusations of racism not by refraining from racial discourse as others suggest but by learning to perform overt racial discourse strategically 
These examples demonstrate the challenges white students face with respect to racial discourse and how Ted, Ted is the white guy who owns a comedy club and he trains people to come go out and be comedians. And so he trains them on how they can give this edgy racist humor and not be racist, cross the hurt line as they call it. Uh, Ted managed such discourse in this space. While negative self-presentation also allows non-whites to talk about race as illustrated next, distance and denial mechanisms were most often encouraged and used by white students as a way of redirecting audience tension and discomfort with public racial discourse by asserting an authentic inauthenticity frame in their performances. This is later in the report, so you all might not have the full context. But like, wow, what? Man, this is so cool. Can you kind of deconstruct? This is your experiment. You go out and hang out with Ted and these yeah. mostly white people yeah. in the comedy club experience learning to be strategic with their racist humor. Yeah, I mean, thanks for thanks for finding that. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, that's almost a decade old that um, that that project. And as a matter of fact, I started doing that field work. I think it was in about two thousand eight or nine or so. So it's been a while. So I have to, I'm trying to jog my memory here. But yes, so this was an ethnography of a of a comedy school, and so I I enrolled as a comedy school student. Um, and I was learning to sort of, you know, you know be a comedian and, and what does it take to be a comedian and, um, you know, and how do you make certain content funny? And so part of, part of the, the, uh, the study here was looking at, um, on the one hand here in this immediate context, how do comedians get away with talking about race, making racist jokes in a way that, you know, an audience is going to find amusing and entertaining and not feel like they crossed the line. And now this comedian is stepping into the territory of just overtly sort of, you know, uh, um, spewing racist, you know, ideas or content or propaganda um, because an audience tends not to go along with that when they feel that, wait a minute, this is maybe a little bit too on the nose. This isn't fun. This isn't, you know, this is serious. Um, and of course, part of the context for the study for me in terms of thinking about that was an incident that happened. Uh, it was at the uh, the Laugh Factory Comedy Club. I believe it was in 2007 or so. It was uh, comedian Michael Richards, who you know uh, used to be on the uh, the Seinfeld show, the, the character Kramer, um, and you know one of the biggest comedy sitcoms of all time. I mean, it, the sitcom made. Um, the comedian uh, Jerry Seinfeld, a, a billionaire. I mean, he's literally a billionaire because of of this show. So it was a you know, major cultural sort of you know impact. Uh, well, this comedian uh, Michael Richards went to the comedy club one evening, and he was being heckled by audience members, some of I think who were African American, and he didn't like it so much. So he just began to spew this kind of racist rant uh, at at, at uh, these. Um, these audience members who were heckling his comedy uh, with very racist, violent imagery, you know, uh, alluding to lynching, alluding to sort of pitchforks. I mean, it was, it was pretty, pretty disgusting. And it visibly the audience was like, this is not comedy anymore. So people got up and walked away. They left the comedy club. People were saying like, you know, they wanted their money back from the club. And, and so 
it turned what was supposed to be a night of entertainment and comedy, it turned it into a spectacle. You know, it kind of ruined, you know, Kramer's or, or uh, uh, Michael Richards, you know, reputation and, you know, potentially his career. So it was a, it was a big issue. And so for me, it was on the one hand, it's like, wait a minute. So there are these lines in comedy where a comedian cannot step over, you know, where the idea of comedy in the comedy club, it's often seen as this kind of almost this temple of freedom of expression, this temple of free speech. You can say anything, anything goes, and the audience is just expected to go along with it. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's the audience who's the problem. It's not the, the entertainer, the comedian. Well, for me, this was a clear example that, no, there are boundaries and there are lines that you cannot cross on a comedy stage. But then the part of the project was, well, I want to really look closely at why is it that in the other racist commentary that comedians engage in, why is that acceptable, but what Michael Richards did not acceptable? And so I enrolled as a comedy student to see why this is taking place. And part of what I find is that you know, comedians, comedy students, and, you know, um, and that's the kind of the, the baseline I'm starting from, but really the entertainment industry more broadly, um, you know, when it's a white person, when it's a white face engaging in racist discourse, I noticed that there was this, this extra effort and attempt on the part of the performer to make sure that they're conveying the idea that they're just playing with this of racist discourse that they don't really believe in, right? And so there's all these distancing strategies that take place, right? They talk in a different voice. They create a character, and in the character that they're having a dialogue with on stage, it's the character who's really the racist. So their uncle so-and-so, you know, this woman they met at the grocery store, it's always somebody else who's really the, the racist, not the, not the comedian who's, who's making those sort of comments. Um, so there's these different strategies to distance the performer, in this case, the white performer, from the racist content that's being shared on the stage, right? So you create that distance, almost like a ventriloquist. It's like, it's the puppet saying the racist stuff, it's not really me. And of course, you have comedians who've done that. Uh, comedian Jeff Dunham, another comedian, he became one of the richest comedians on the planet through his ventriloquism, and a lot of his puppets are racialized puppets that represent racist stereotypes. Um, so this distancing strategy I saw playing on the stage in the, in the comedy classes all the time. Um, and of course, when you look closely at, at the industry of, of stand-up comedy and comedy more broadly, you notice that pretty regularly um, once you kind of know what to look for. When it came to comedians of color, I noticed that if they were of the, you know, the, the, the racialized group, then they were expected to play up the racial stereotypes associated with their group, right? So if the performer was black, if they were Latino, if they were Asian, it's like you have to lean into the racist stereotypes, lean into them, right? Like go further, go more, more so than the white comedian might because an audience expects it, right? So they were encouraged to do that. And they were encouraged then once they did that to then start, you know, making fun of other racialized groups. So, so part of what drew my interest in this project and part of what I was trying to explore was, wait a minute, the arena of comedy is, uh, is a public space where racist talk, where racist discourse, where racist ideas uh, are being verbalized all the time. And of course, I was a graduate student at the time, not an undergrad and a graduate student, just started graduate school. And all of my, all of my 
textbooks and all of the key works that I'm reading on the, you know, the sociology of you know, race and ethnicity and racism, all of the major works at that time, this is, you know, right before the Obama era, all of them are basically saying that, you know, racist, racist talk in public is no longer easily accepted, right? We've gone through a civil rights movement. We've gone through the kind of debates over affirmative action and political correctness over the 19, um, you know, uh, 80s and 90s. You know, the, the cultural terrain is changing. People no longer think racism is acceptable. In fact, even racist, even like, you know, uh, uh, a, you know uh, racist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan and these other organizations, even they say they're not racist. They say, you know, racism is bad. We don't, we're not a racist organization, et cetera, et cetera. So that, you know, for the first time in U.S. society and first time in U.S. history, and really probably for the first time in global Western society, racism was acknowledged as a social ill, as a social problem, as something negative, right? So racism is a negative thing, you know, that we want to disassociate ourselves from because nobody wants to be labeled racist. No organization wants to acknowledge that they're a racist organization, right? Um, but then, right, part of what I'm noticing with the comedy stuff is that, wait a minute, if the literature says racism has gone away, that it's no longer acceptable to say racist things, it's no longer acceptable to, you know, uh, to frame your identity as, as a racist one, even the Klan says they're not racist. Um, if racism is bad, Part of my project was to say, if racism is bad, why is racism so fun, right? If it's bad, but then here it's fun, and it, there's a context of fun. And the arena of entertainment, the arena of comedy, is one where we see that racism is treated as fun. Race itself is treated as, as fun. Um, and that creates the context for racism itself to be fun. And so part of what I wanted to do in that project early on was kind of map that and say, wait a minute, what makes the racism fun? How are they doing it? What are the strategies being deployed so that every comedian that's making a racist joke doesn't turn into Michael Richards on the one hand? And on the other hand, how is it that these other comedians not only are able to get away with it, but they make careers out of it. And some of these entertainers become multimillionaires. They become celebrities. They become sort of cultural, these kind of cultural sort of heroes almost, because look at, you know, they get, a, they get to say whatever they want on the stage, seemingly so, and they get celebrated, they get rewarded for it. And how are they able to do that? How are they able to get away with that? And so part of, part of that project was trying to understand racism and its relationship to humor and fun and amusement in the current context. And then as I got closer to writing a book, I started to realize that to tell a fuller story, I really need to look at this also historically. So how has racism and its relationship to humor, how has this played out over time? And then also what I did in the book is really thinking about how does racist humor and racist fun, how does it exist in context beyond entertainment? So that it's not just the comedy stage or the comedy show where racist fun is taking place, it's taking place in other contexts um, that we need to pay close attention to and contexts where in some cases they can have very deadly consequences, like the context of law enforcement. Oriental James marked uh, Mark G E D Furman. Uh, before 
I transitioned to the souls of white jokes. Uh, I wanted to ask, and I'll compare this with my own experience. Now, you share in the report that most of the folks that you observed were white, mostly white males. Uh, there were non-white people present. In fact, I'll even give audience listeners a little snippet. Uh, so this is uh, on page 16 of your report. Uh, you write, it's talking about Drew, so-called uh, biracial Asian white male late 20s he's uh he began with a series of black jokes of course after his set the instructor insisted i need you to take some shots at yourself before you go into your race material the fact that his race material incorporated banal racial stereotypes blacks having lots of babies being lazy complaining too much was not the issue according to ted rather the problem was that drew had not taken some shots at himself first Ted reinforced the self-deprecation strategy by suggesting he began talking about being biracial the following week he began with this joke so I'm half Jewish and half Japanese or Jew-panese as I call it <laughs> negative self-presentation or self-deprecation therefore is a strategic variation of the positive self-presentation strategy and alleviates some of the tension of crossing the herd line, meaning practicing racism, and staving off accusations of racism. While a veil of fairness is produced, this strategy conveys to the audience that the performer can also take a joke, thus allowing the performer to then negatively present or represent others in quotes uh did you hear any like white jokes because dr fegan talked about that when he was with us that you just don't see these all right now let me get into my boom boom did, did what white jokes did you hear about white men white women white children white people in general yeah so i mean that's a great question and i mean you're right that that there isn't the same degree of these kinds of jokes being a part of the a part of the culture. Again, thinking about how cultural expressions are connected to the social structure, right? Uh, there there aren't that many, and the ones that that there are, they tend to be segmented in particular ways. Either they're ethnic jokes, right? Jokes that focus on a particular ethnic or even racialized white sort of grouping, right? So jokes about Italians, jokes about the Polish, jokes about you know, Jews, for instance. Um, or they're also sort of segmented in a class-based way, right? So jokes about, you know, quote-unquote white trash or rednecks or some other sort of lower-class sort of white community that, you know, those, in a sense, are quote-unquote white jokes, but they're about a particular kind of white sort of, you know, uh, community or a white sort of experience, one that's sort of downwardly mobile one that is not sort of the normative experience for whiteness. And so those become objects of ridicule. I mean, I've heard jokes about, you know, you know, white suburban kids who listen to too much hip hop. And so, you know, they think they're black. And so they become a punchline in that way. Um, you know, this, these aren't as common anymore, but I remember like in the eighties or nineties, uh, you know, jokes about blondes were very popular and, you know, the blondes are dumb and, Things like that, right? So there, uh, and and of course that was also connected to 
to sort of sexism, right? And the way that sort of patriarchy is another way in which the society is sort of um, structured. And so, you know, blonde jokes were not just about blonde women, but they were also about women, right? And their place in society. So, so I, you know, I did hear some of these jokes, but again, they were always qualified, right? So jokes about blondes are not about white people in general. They're not even about white women in general. They're about a particular slice of white women, right? Uh, jokes about an ethnic, you know, a uh, 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 white, you know, ethnic community. They're about that particular community, even though the same jokes can get recycled from generation to generation. So, for instance, like a lot of Polish jokes, in some cases, were recycled from jokes about earlier, you know, uh, migrant, you know, uh, uh, groups from from uh, from Europe, you know, uh, Italians, for instance, or you know, German or the Irish, right? So sometimes the ethnic joke can be particular for that grouping if the stereotype is specific enough. Sometimes they can get recycled and placed on, on other groupings. But there isn't this category of, you know, white humor, the way there is about black humor, the way there is about, you know, Asians or the way, the way there is about other racialized groups. Um, there, aren't, there isn't this broad kind of umbrella, you know, racialized a grouping of humor, which again is connected back to the racial structure of the society, right? If if whiteness is superior, right, in in the sense in a in a racial order, then the jokes of the social structure tend not to be about the superior groups. The jokes in the social structure tend to be about the inferior groups and what makes them inferior. And of course, the way that ideas of inferiority are often circulated. Um, it's often through humor, right? Because humor is also, this is the other thing that I'm trying to emphasize with the work, is that humor is also a pedagogical tool. Humor is, is informing you about how to see the world, how to interpret the world, so, so, so that the jokes themselves are not just a moment of kind of lighthearted fun. They, they are embedding ideas, worldviews, ideologies, that, that, the, that the laughter at that joke is kind of, confirming the shared understanding, the shared the shared experience or the shared the shared pleasure that's taking place in mocking or ridiculing a particular a particular group. My experience in Atlanta, Georgia, where they only recently removed the Confederate flag from the Georgia State flag, uh, in a black comedy club where ninety percent of the time there would be zero whites present at the club at all staff uh, patrons comedians <laughs> zero i never heard black people joke about white people never did you hear non-white people joke about white people i mean i think that there there is a growing sort of niche in this kind of comedy i think in the last maybe you know, um, decade and a half or so, you're, you're beginning to see, uh, you know, after you, like, I think in response to having a critical mass of, you know, people of color going to college, going to university, you know, um, you know taking courses in ethnic studies or sociology or some other course like this, um, you know, you're, you're having this kind of, uh, this new sort of space in, in the society where, you know some of these some of these folks who you know might be interested in 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 comedy as a 
you know, something they want to sort of be a part of or engage in, or they give these open mics a try. And some of these folks end up being sort of comedians. So I can think of one comedian, for instance, um, the Indian American comedian, Hari Kandabalu, for instance, a lot of his comedy is focused on sort of punching upward in a sense of making fun of whiteness, making fun of sort of white, you know, supremacy uh, and things like that. You know, his, his, um, you know, his, his friend and buddy, uh, W. Kamau Bell, before he became, uh, you know, a host for, uh, for the CNN show that he's on now, um, you know, some of his comedy albums early on dealt with the question of, uh, of race and whiteness and, you know, his own struggle of, you know, what Du Bois would call double consciousness, right, of, of, of sort of being, you know, black or being a person of color in predominantly white spaces or in a white society. So, so th- there are certain comedians who have sort of begun to do this over the last decade, decade and a half or so, but you're right that that is not the norm. Like th- that, that tends not to be the, the norm in, in these spaces. And it often requires a comedian to be much more intentional in trying to deploy this, this kind of humor. Um, and if you look, so if you look historically at comedians of the comedians of the post civil rights era, right? Um, cause part of the way that I'd also divide my timeline and, and how I'm thinking about the relationship between race and humor is in the pre civil rights era and the post civil rights era. Um, and in the post civil rights era, when it comes to comedians of color, you have had some comedians of color who use the comedy stage to deploy you know, politically and intentionally jokes about whiteness, right? So you can uh, think about comedians like uh, Dick Gregory um, and even more so by a comedian like Richard Pryor who, who who early on wanted to be just the next Bill Cosby. He wanted to tell these, these kind of wholesome jokes, you know, and, and, you know, he just, he wanted to be the next Cosby, right? Um, but, but his upbringing was not a middle-class sort of, you know, uh, black community he grew up in the sort of underclass of, you know, black society in Peoria, Illinois. And, and part of his comedy was on the one hand, sharing that with the world. And I think that's part of what made uh, prior. So kind of, um, you know, uh, so sort of enigmatic and so popular with his comedy is that he was revealing the black experience, especially to white audiences who could sort of, you know, go to the shows and, you know, they don't know any black people personally, probably. They don't go to that side of town. But here's Richard Pryor telling them exactly what that town is like or, you know, or what members of, you know, uh, you know his own family are like and so forth in a comedic way. And so Pryor tended to do that, right, and, and also made very liberal use of the N-word in a way that Later, he began to sort of even second guess that, saying like, "Wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't have done that because now I have white people coming after the shows, telling me n-word jokes." He's like, "I don't like that. That's not what I was. That's not what I was trying to do with this comedy." But in some of his comedy, he would have humor that he would deploy in terms of try, trying to sort of mock whiteness, trying to sort of sort of show the. Um, you know, the contradictions or the ridiculousness of what whiteness is, you know, how white people are or, or what whiteness makes white people do in the society, he would try to deploy that somewhat in his, in his comedy. Um, and and in, in a sense, because Cosby was, I mean, sorry, Pryor was so, was so popular and became such a sort of global phenomenon with his comedy, 
this created the possibility for other comedians down the road to attempt to do that. But can a comedian of color, can a black comedian make a whole career out of only taking shots at white people, for instance? Uh, no. I mean, I don't know of any comedians who that's uh, their only sort of comedy that they, that they deploy. Um, and of course, that's very different from the kind of comedy that was popular for almost two centuries, the comedy of the pre-civil rights era, which, you know, was most popular in the genre of blackface minstrelsy, right? Blackface minstrelsy was a very sort of easy setup for white entertainers. You basically paint your face black, you pretend you're a black person, you speak in what you think is black dialect, you make fun of what you think black people are, you know, you, 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 know, you present them as ignorant, as buffoonish, as inarticulate, as, you know, trying to be white, but they can't. You just present them as silly buffoons to comedic effect. And really, that's all it took. And you can become a celebrity from doing it. So in the history of the United States, you have a history where it was okay for a white person to mock or ridicule a person of color. And that was their career. That was their bread and butter. That's all they really needed to do, at, you know, to, to exist and survive and thrive in the entertainment industry. Um, of course, they can't do that after the civil rights movement because people of color are protesting, you know, the fact that they're tired of being second-class citizens, of being oppressed and abused and, you know, by police and by all social institutions. So that racist humor is for the first time considered racist after the civil rights period. And that's why, as you know, the article you were mentioning earlier, learning to make racism funny. So the reason that white comedians have to have to dress racist commentary in all these strategies is because the racist humor of the pre-civil rights era is no longer just easily tolerated. It's no longer socially accepted. So they have to layer and distance and create all these kind of strategies. Um, Hang on one second. I just want to pop in because we we pivoted away from my question a little bit. Uh, The, when I asked about the, but no, not appreciate the detail. Uh, Just my question about black people responding uh, or black people joking yeah. about white people and it not being very much uh there's not very much content in this uh, regard you said some of it's growing mm-hmm. uh you mentioned w kamau bell mm-hmm. cowbell he's been a guest on this program march 2010 uh you also mentioned dick gregory mm-hmm. two-time guest on this program hates our guts mm-hmm. uh the late uh dick gregory <laughs> i looked at uh richard Pryor because we talked about him extensively even did a study session on his uh autobiography I'm looking at just some of the album titles. That nigger's crazy. Bicentennial nigger. And wanted. As in by the law criminal or what have you. A lot of this. As you said, he ended up coming out and. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He even talked about in the book about him coming out and apologizing. Like a lot of this. I don't really. In my view. Most of that is. Is not at all them talking about white people uh in fact yeah dick gregory w kamau mel those folks i would say most of that is very much in the vein of joking about black people not joking about what in fact two of the three they married white people so i mean at any rate um to pivot to the souls of white jokes i wanted to try to get in some of the specific uh portions that i thought were really outstanding from the text and even i wanted to start off because i thought Man, when I went to this book, 
the first person I thought of, or one of the first people, Abraham Lincoln, who is in the book. Tartoon as an ape, uh, some of the earlier uh, depictions when you even talk about this also doesn't count as a racist joke, a racist joke against white people, because really they're associating him with the ape characterizing him with black people like oh the great emancipator and ah you know your negro lover and that sort of thing uh with this cartoon i thought hmm are you familiar with uh laron bennett jr's book forced into glory uh no i have to check that one out okay uh that's one of my favorite books uh he's a historian awesome text this is uh 102 Uh, of his book forced into glory the chapter prologue in blackface and whiteface he writes the critical question like other critical lincoln questions has never been answered some students say that jokes were vents that made it possible for him to endure sadness and the horror of war others say he used jokes as a diversion or strategy his closest friend joshua speed said telling jokes was necessary to his very existence. None of this, of course, addresses the real question, which is why jokes were necessary to his existence. This is not the place to answer that question in detail. The main point we want to make here is that humor was a weapon that Lincoln deliberately chose to deal with the world and to keep the world at bay in the same way that Jack Benny and Mark Twain used humor to enlarge themselves and to triumph over the world and the devil. Whether humor was a vent or a diversion or, as seems most likely, a life-defining way of dealing with the world, President Lincoln joked his way through his term telling stories on, among other things, darky arithmetic and darky theology. There was the time, for instance, that the President of the United States, to the dismay of Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts, interrupted a White House discussion on the tragically high union mortality rate to tell a group of English visitors about darky arithmetic. The dignified representatives of the learning and higher thought of Greater Britain and her American Dominion were shocked. I did not know, Mr. President, one said, that you have two systems of arithmetic. Oh yes, said the President. I will illustrate the point by a little story. Two young contraband, as we have learned to call them, were seated together when one said, Jim, do you know arithmetic? Jim answered, No. What is arithmetic? Well, said the other, it's when you add up things. When you have one and one and you put them together, they makes two. And when you subtract things, when you have two things and you takes one away, only one remains. Is that arithmetic? Yes. Well, taint true then. It's no good. Here, a dispute arose when Jim said, Now, you suppose three pigeons sit on that fence and somebody shoot one of them off, do two others stay, dar? 
I guess not. They flies away quicker than other fellas falls. Wilson said that if he had known a thousand stories, he wouldn't have told that one to Professor Smith and his grave-looking English friends who seemed to enjoy the performance and he was mortified that the president should so inopportunely indulge in such frivolity. Inopportunely or not, the president of the United States indulged in such frivolities at cabinet meetings. During a discussion on Spain and Santo Domingo on February 2nd, 1864, 13 months after he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, the president said he was reminded Secretary of Navy Gideon Wells noted in his diary of an interview between two Negroes, one of whom was a preacher, endeavoring to admonish and enlighten the other. There are, said Josh the preacher, two roads for you, Joe. Be careful which you take. One ob dem leads straight to hell. The otter go right to damnation. Joe opened his eyes under the impressive eloquence and awful future and exclaimed, Josh, take which road you please. I go through the wood. I am not disposed to take any new trouble, said the president, just at this time, and shall neither go for Spain nor the Negro in this manner, but shall take to the woods. This apparently was one of Lincoln's favorite stories where he changed the characters and locale in a White House conference with Cassius Clay of Kentucky, not the boxer, of course, who said he was with Lincoln when a report came that one of the Unionists was caught in Virginia by the rebels and condemned to death, the choice being left to him to be hung or shot. I saw a trace of humor pass over his sad face when he said he was reminded of a camp meeting of colored Methodists in his earlier days. There was a brother who responded often to the preacher with, Amen, bless the Lord, etc. The preacher drew a strong line, sweeping the sinners on both sides into the devil's net. All those who thus are in the downward path to ruin and all those who so act including about the whole human race are on the sure road to hell the unctuous brother bewildered cried out bless the lord this nigger takes to the woods we will stop there on 104 Laron Bennett Jr. forced into glory this was what I thought of of Abraham Lincoln and his hankering for darky jokes. Yeah. You said you hadn't heard of this. What do you what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean I think that that falls squarely in line with I mean some of the other stuff that that I came across in, in doing some of the research earlier on for for the book is the fact that racist humor um has been a part of the White House for for a long time. Uh the fact that, you know, many uh, many presidents, you know, Lincoln included and other presidents, would routinely have, you know, minstrel shows, you know, performed at, you know, at the White House, at events uh, for the White House. You know, many times where, when presidents were inaugurated, 
you know, some of the featured performers uh, at these performances would often be, you know, some of the, you know, the leading acts at the time. Uh, so in the era of blackface minstrelsy, you know, up until, you know, the mid 20th century, basically, you know, oftentimes that meant blackface performers being featured at presidential inaugurations and parties and, you know, and things like that. Um, uh, and one of the other um, uh, articles that, that I wrote a few years ago, um, I found some interesting uh, some interesting information too about the inauguration of John F. Kennedy. This was in uh, nineteen fifty nine, I think. Um, and you know, this was an interesting time in in uh, in U.S. history because, um, you know, like I said, you know, blackface minstrelsy was such a key part of the early formation of United States popular culture. You know, where presidents, even like Lincoln, you know, the, you know, saw and thought that these were sort of great you know, forms of, of entertainment. Well, by the time you get into the, you know, mid 20th century, when the civil rights movement is picking up steam, all of a sudden it's the first time in the history where like, you can't tell racist jokes anymore. Blackface is seen as, you know, as a racist form of entertainment. And so network television and radio, they begin to remove, you know, the, the racist minstrel shows from the stage. Uh, and from and from the airwaves, you know, shows like Amos and Andy, for instance, that were really popular um, at the time, they're being canceled now by uh, by the TV networks, and they're not showing them on television anymore. Uh, well, this is kind of like an issue for the inauguration of of JFK because it's like, wait a minute, well, who's going to be the the entertain? What's going to be the entertainment if we can't have minstrel shows anymore? And we've been doing that for you know. Uh, for over a century. So, so what are we going to do now? Well, the the new sort of uh, punching bag, in a sense, at the time and in the cultural arena, when it came to racial and ethnic humor, um, were were Latinos, were Mexicans, um, or other sort of you know peoples of Latin America. And the headline performer, or one of the headline performers for for JFK's inauguration ball was this Jewish comedian by the name of Bill Dana, who became famous in this kind of in-between period as the civil rights movement is beginning, blackface is being removed from TV and radio. Well, that blackface was no longer acceptable, but there was sort of ambiguity about brownface. So could this Jewish comedian you know, pretend he's Latino and then ridicule and mock Latinos in the way that you know, a white comedian would historically mock, you know, African-Americans. And sure enough, this guy was a major celebrity. He had, you know, television shows. You know, he was, a, you know, had Grammy Award nominations. Um, and all of that contributed to him being a featured performer at JFK's, um, you know, inauguration. So, so yeah, so, so, you know, so what you're kind of pointing out here about Lincoln, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's, I mean, there's a research project in of itself, right? The, how does racist humor feature itself, you know, in the Oval Office and, and how has it been a part of the Oval Office, you know, for, for a long time, you know, either. Hang on one second, being right sort there. Of um, Dr. Perez, we actually, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly wrote a whole book on that. Nixon's Piano, it starts. President Nixon having menstrual shows yeah, right, at yeah. the White House and he yeah. goes through the entire yeah. history of the presidency, White House, yeah. George Washington, all the way through. Yeah. 
April 2010, but with Lincoln specifically, and I guess if I could make one request, if you could kind of answer my question sure. maybe with uh, not as much detail, not straying as much from the question so we can cover a little bit <laughs> sure. more detail, that sure. would be grand. Uh, the reason that I wanted to stick with yeah. Lincoln specifically is because I think that is so important individuals think of Lincoln as the great emancipator. Even in the book, he's not presented as someone who was racist and enjoyed racist jokes about black people. He's presented as a nigger lover, basically. He's sided up with the black people. That's why I thought that is really important. If I was going to have any president, it would be Lincoln because this is, hey, don't think you should restrict racist jokes or what have you to one specific party, the Republicans, even though this would be the Republican Party, but this is not even what you think of as the Republican Party. This is back when it was the other way around, when the Democratic Party was the white supremacy party explicitly, and the Republican Party was friendly with black people, not the way we think of it now, that even those white people, even Abraham Lincoln, loved and told racist jokes. That, I think, is a very different way of thinking about what does it mean to be white and white culture that even Abraham Lincoln loves and is telling racist jokes. Yes? Yep. No, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I, and I think it kind of speaks to the sort of pervasive sort of nature of this kind of phenomenon and, and you know, what is it doing in the society? And so part of what I try to unpack in, in the book is kind of give it some theoretical leg uh, legwork here in terms of thinking about what is racist humor doing in the society. And then here maybe I can sort of just read really quickly a, a quote that I used to to introduce some of the theoretical parts of the, of the chapter there in the book. Uh, and here I'm citing a white social scientist, um, you know, Gunnar Myrtle, who in, in 1944 wrote a book in American Dilemma, you know, I think the, the subtitle is uh, uh, The Negro in American Democracy or something like that. I'm, I'm blanking on the full uh, title there. Uh, but but even Myrtle, who was commissioned to write a book on the state of black people in the United States, because, you know, um, the, the idea was that let's bring an unbiased outsider to talk about the black experience here because Du Bois and others have been talking about the black experience, but oh, obviously they're biased because they're black or, you know, so they were kind of disregarded. And, and Myrtle noticed racist humor all around him when he was here. So he doesn't, he doesn't really expand on it empirically in his book, but, he, but, it, but it caught enough of his attention for him to write about it in sort of anecdote form. And so here's what Myrtle says. He says, he says it's interesting to notice the great pleasure of white people in all classes taken stereotype jokes and in indulging in discussions about the Negro, what he says, does, and thinks. He says it's apparently felt as a release, right? Jokes giving release to troubled people. He says the main function of the joke is to create what he calls a collective surreptitious approbation, meaning basically that they're, they're in agreement for something which cannot be approved explicitly because of moral inhibitions. The moral inhibition is that racism, again, is, uh, is, is being seen as, as a problem. He says, to the whites, the Negro jokes further serve the function of proving the inferiority of the Negro, right? So, so the jokes are doing many things at the same time, right? In the case of whether it's Lincoln or, you know, it's on the minstrel stage, you know, the act of joke telling, you're kind of bringing people to your side. You're trying to create a sense of community, camaraderie, solidarity, and so forth. 
at the same time that you're doing that, you're conveying this sort of information. So when it comes to racist humor, whether it's Lincoln telling these jokes, whether, you know, whoever it is, whether it's the, the minstrel stage or the comedian or the police officer, you're sharing in this kind of pleasure, almost this guilty pleasure. Um, um, and and, and a part of the fun is that because maybe it's kind of naughty, maybe you're not supposed to be doing this, maybe, you know, we shouldn't be talking about this right now. Um, but then the idea that's connected to that is, in this case, the punchline of the joke, which is telling you how inferior this group is or how, you know, how stupid they are, you know, how, you know, how, how they're not like we are, right? They're everything we're not, right? So if the punchline is they're stupid, they're inferior, they're dumb, you know, well, that, that's to showcase that we're not them, right? So, so I think, you know, part of really understanding what racist humor is doing is to understand these kind of pro-social and anti-social kind of um, consequences that they have. Hmm. With jokes, I think one of the things as well, you talked about sharing information, uh, a shared understanding. Uh, you talk about the emotional bonds uh, around these jokes. One of the questions that we've asked for many years, and I point to these jokes because, at least in my view, you have to understand racism, at least at some level, to get these jokes. Like all the different forms, whether you're talking television show, the comedians, or people that are hanging out on the golf course, or boardroom, wherever it is, you can't be confused about what a nigra is or whatever it is if you don't understand racism. You will just be confused. It will not be funny. You'll just be sitting there, what? What? What are you talking about? So the question we've asked for years, who do you think is more informed about racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, the mechanics, all areas of people activity, why things are the way that they are. Do you think that white people are more informed about racism, what it is, how it works, or do you think non-white people are more informed? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think in terms of everyday sort of, you know, experience, uh, for instance, uh, you know, in a racialized society like the United States, you know, encounters of racism would most often happen to people of color. Um, and so that direct experience with racism is kind of informing you of something. It's like, hey, your place in the society. And of course, once you recognize your place in the society, if it's a subordinate place, if the opportunities and structures are sort of limiting, you know, your, 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 you know, your well-being in the society, then you're more, more going to notice what's happening in the society say that somebody, you know, so take the issue of, you know, police violence or police brutality. I mean, who are the people that continually raise the issue of police violence and police brutality? Well, it tends to be the people on the receiving end, the communities on the receiving end of police violence and police brutality. So police violence and brutality is not happening in the white part of town, in the suburb, you know, in the sort of, you know, more affluent part of town then that's not going to resonate as a social problem, as a social ill, in the same way that if this problem is routinely happening in sort of in, in a particular racialized community, especially if it's an impoverished racialized community, where it's going to happen much more frequently, then that's going to emerge as a social problem, a social uh, ill uh, there, right? So, so absolutely, right? Um, uh, uh, the, the people on the receiving end of this experience are going to, you know, be more attuned to it as a real experience. 
Um, you know, I, I, I recently read a, um, uh, uh, another book uh, by um, a soci- fellow sociologist, Nolan Cabrera, wrote a book called White Guys on Campus. And he's, and he's interviewing, he's interviewing white students about their racialized worldviews and experiences and so forth. And in there, he has a chapter where he talks about racist humor. And in that chapter, the very first paragraph, one of the first or second sentences, one of the things that he points out is that when he asks white students their encounters with racism or how they, you know, how do they, how do they experience racism on the everyday, he says that the most frequent thing that they point out is that they're most likely to experience racism in the form of racist humor that they hear from others, um, you know, it, and especially in predominantly white contexts, right? So, so that, you know, white students on college campuses, they tend to experience racism not in they, they, they're the victims of racist policies, racist institutions, racist policing. No, they tend to experience it and of, in the form of joke telling, in the form of having a good time, in the context of fun and amusement, because they know that they can engage in that kind of behavior in the college classroom with, you know, with, with everybody there, right? So what, what Joe Fagan and, and uh, I think Leslie Hupika point out in the book, Front Stage Racism and Backstage Racism, right? Um, this is exactly what they find as well in, in their research. Right. They're finding that in the backstage settings, in private settings, in settings with friends and, you know, others that you feel, you know, you know, closer, you know, in solidarity with, there you feel more comfortable engaging in this kind of behavior. You know, you tend not to do that in the public setting. And of course, the people who do do it in the public setting are often the people who socially they're given license, right? The comedian, the entertainer, the people who we, who we say, Nobody, your, your, the role is to Dr. Perez, kind of I apologize for hopping in Go here. Um, and this is something I generally point this out with guests that are classified as white, where it's difficult to get answers to questions um, where you've talked. Yeah. The only reason I interrupted is because you've talked for a number of minutes and I still haven't gotten an answer to my question about who's more informed. And this uh-huh. where I have to continually ask sure. the guest. Can you maybe if you can just give us an answer? I don't think that's funny, like at all. That's normally the type of thing that I point out in ways that white people practice racism, white supremacy deliberately and not answering questions. We even have a sound effect for that and everything like that is no joking manner. If you could answer the question, the detail is great. But the only reason I'm doing this is because you talked for three minutes and I still haven't got answers to my question. And that's happened a number of times. The question who do you sure. think is more informed about racism, white supremacy, what it is, and how it works? Individuals classified as white, individuals classified as not white. Well, I mean, I, again, I mean, this is it's a, it's a, it's it's a more complicated question than I think maybe you're alluding to because we have to think about well, which white people? If we're talking about white supremacists, right? Their racist understanding of the world, or how they think about racism as a as, as, a, as a social issue, is going to be different, right? Uh, uh, depending on how we're thinking about the the issue uh, and and how we're trying to define it. So, I mean, who has more understanding of it? I mean, again, the people who have more experience in terms of being racialized, being subject to you know to 
to racist policies, racist abuse in a racialized society, in a racist society, in a white supremacist society, that's going to be people of color. Thank you, sir. Much obliged. Uh, there are folks who dialed in, and that was another reason, too, because we do have people that called in, so I want to make sure I get some of their questions uh, as well. So uh, much obliged sure. if you can try and condense yeah. some of your responses and, and make sure that we actually get an answer, and then yeah. you can give us the detail as well, sir. Much okay. obliged. Uh, yeah. In the book, yeah. The Souls yeah. of, of White Jokes, thank you kindly, uh, on page 160, or it's actually mentioned throughout the text. I'm just picking. This is uh, 160. Uh, you write about the concept of white schadenfreude white schadenfreude I think is the correct pronunciation mm-hmm. schadenfreude We've ta- we have cow's mm-hmm. words uh, for folks who've been listening to this program for any number of years several of them were mentioned in the book uh, anachronistic one that was mentioned schadenfreude uh, we have several words you mentioned white schadenfreude or, or the racist pleasure in feeling superior to racialized groups who are seen as inferior objects of amused contempt and or and who are believed to be worthy of racial control punishment and violence by both individuals and the state has contributed to the effective and emotional maintenance of whiteness as a dominant and resistant racial order it is a worldview worldview that is opposed to seeing the shared humanity of all racialized groups and targets i think this is super important and even one that people should think about in terms of who is more informed about racism white supremacy can you kind of share with our listeners this concept white schadenfreude why that's so important yeah so again so i'm thinking about what racist humor is how is racist humor is connected to to white supremacy um you know i was really trying to connect this idea of schadenfreude which I think there's a kind of maybe a popular understanding, right? Uh, finding joy or pleasure in the misery of others. Um, and of course, in the, you know, the, the misery of racialized others is, has been historically and is today a source of pleasure. So when we think about racist humor, part of what I'm trying to articulate is that the, the, it's rooted in a society where racist abuse in a white supremacist society has been a source of fun, and that fun is rooted in the in the misery of racialized um, others, the racialized minorities, um, Black Americans um, in particular, um, and how that is a core part of what's happening with racist humor. It's it's, it's finding fun, finding amusement, you know, sharing a good time in you know in in mocking and ridiculing um, you know people who you see as you know, racially inferior or are of a particular racialized group that you already have a racial understanding of. I mentioned that concept. I get my second mention for Katrina in. We read Gary Rivlin's Katrina After the Flood. Ray Nagin, who was mayor, non-white male, uh, who was mayor uh, during Hurricane Katrina, the levee breach, and he said... uh, (laughs) I don't know if famous or infamous would be the correct term. Anyway, he said uh, that New Orleans was a chocolate city before the storm and it's going to remain a chocolate city. And the crowd, yeah, that's right, right. Meaning that uh, the black residents who had to evacuate 
uh, that they were going to return. That did not happen. They lost 100,000 approximately black residents uh, who left New Orleans after Katrina and never returned. Uh, but eventually, I think 2010, somewhere approximately 2010, Ray Nagin ended up being arrested, corruption charges, had to go to prison uh, for a number of years. White Schadenfreude was it was as though Ray Nagin did something personally to the white citizens of New Orleans or the parishes in that area like oh ha ha don't drop the soap <laughs> and laugh and sn- I mean like what in the way we, we talked about this with Gary Lip- Rivlin like what in the world and it seemed even some of it was rooted in oh yeah got your chocolate city <laughs> that's widespread enjoyment laughter and ridicule at the suffering of black people non-white people but especially black people huge aspect of the racist uh, jokes one big question that I wanted to ask so much of, of this book talks about white men these jokes are aimed at white men and, and trying to buff up the masculinity of white men where are the white women in your study of, of racist humor where are they at in all this yeah so I have a uh, a chapter in so the first the first two like empirical chapters I think you're right really do focus on sort of you know white masculinity right the first chapter looks at or the first empirical chapter looks at the far right so how do they weaponize racist humor what do they use it for how is it connected to you know white masculinity you know, the next chapter looks at policing. So, and policing is a very uh, also uh, you know, predominantly male space. So, the, the police uh, humor and the racist police humor. Then, what is it doing? You know, the, the the third chapter that I look at, I look at the way that you know Barack Obama in two thousand and seven and two thousand and eight, how how he became a sort of a a national figure for white schadenfreude, a national figure for amused racial contempt because he became the first kind of very popular, very visible contender for the White House. Um, and so for conservative commentators, for Republican elected officials, you know, some of their own anxiety over the possibility of a black president was being sort of relieved through racist humor um, targeted at, at Obama. Um, and in that chapter, I point to the fact that some of the folks who were engaging in this early on were in fact white women, you know, white women who were calling on radio shows like Rush Limbaugh's radio show, for instance, um, or, you know, white women who were elected officials, you know, in places like here in Southern California, right, liberal progressive California, where white conservative women here were sharing via email, you know, with their constituents or with other people, you know, in their in their party, you know, racist contempt and racist you know, amused racist contempt for, you know, for Obama, you know, among themselves. Um, and part of the reason that that got out was because, you know, in, in, in more than a few cases, it was women of color who the Republican Party had outreached to, to say, hey, you know, we want to be more than just the party for white people. You know, here, come join the Republican Party. Now they're unmailing this. And, you know, on multiple occasions, you had black women on these mailing lists who would then get emails from these uh, elected, you know, white women uh, in the Republican Party with racist caricatures, racist jokes, 
uh, about you know Barack Obama, you know, uh, alluding to the fact you know the idea that Obama was you know really a, a monkey that his parents were monkeys. So you know these images that became sort of you know once they were sort of revealed to the public were, were expressions of like how dare the Republican Party, you know, look at look at what they're hiding, you know, you know, uh, 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 you know, in the in the backstage. This is what they really think about, you know, the president. And so, of course, it became a big media spectacle. But this was happening all across the country in different ways. And, and here in California, uh, uh, in particular, it was, you know, it was white women who were engaging in this kind of behavior uh, pretty, pretty regularly. Marianne Twitty and Ferguson we talked about her back way back in 2014, I think, or 15, if my memory is uh, is accurate. Uh, that is very accurate with regards to the targeting of President Obama. White women uh, in your book very involved in that. Uh, are you aware in the same gendered manner uh, as the cartoons that are, are seeming like they are targeting white men to rally them and get them to be more explicit or do specific acts of violence sometimes or whatever uh, with regards to supporting white supremacy or racism? Are you aware of the types of either gendered jokes or cartoons or memes uh, that seem like they're specifically targeting white women? You mean that that are being used by uh, by like the far right or by, you know, white uh, people in general? Not, not in- sure if I to encourage, yes, yeah. yes, sir, to import, to support and encourage, get white women to support, encourage, carry out white supremacy, racism in whatever manner. Oh, got it. I see what you're saying. Um, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, definitely that's what these, uh, uh, you know, uh, Republican elected officials, you know, were doing. They were, I mean, they were trying to encourage everybody. I mean, they thought that everybody, you know, who was on that list, sir, was going to go ahead and, and, you know, be okay with this 100%. You know, the far right, you know, the old far right, you know, the neo-Nazis. The, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is, this is not, this is another one because this is not the, the question. Like the images that you're talking okay. about, maybe okay. I wasn't correct with the question. You have images of like okay. white men where it says, don't be uh, like a lame white person, be a mighty whitey, where it's got a white man who's literally on the ground yeah, groveling, yeah. being robbed, and sure. then a white man with a baseball bat comes yeah. and bashes the black person. Like, it's lots of that type of thing. The images that yeah. you're talking about with Twitty yeah. and these other white women, it's like Barack Obama as an ape or watermelon. It, that's not white women yeah. are not being depicted. It's yeah. not anything directly targeting white women. Like, hey, answer the call, get out there and practice. Right? Like, that's what I'm talking about. Do you Are you aware of any content like that? Oh, I, I see. I see. I see. I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, that's not as that's not as common. No, like I'm, I haven't really seen as as much of that. I mean, I'm sure it's there, but I, I haven't um, I haven't in, encountered it uh, more so in terms of you know the, the sort of narrative of sort of white supremacy and white racial violence in a more explicit fashion. That tends to be sort of you know produced by the by the far right, and then the far right you know, has not only a sort of racist white supremacist worldview, it also has a very sort of patriarchal one so that, you know, the, the heroes in the story of, you know, the far right are white men who are supposed to defend, you know, uh, you know, white women from, uh, you know, from the hordes of, you know, black men or people of color who, who, who want a piece of them. Um, but there is part of that story of the far right. There is the kind of the ridicule of whiteness or whiteness that's seen as not in the service of white supremacy, right? So, so even the far right 
is making fun of, you know, white liberals who, you know, who are going to kowtow to, you know, to people of color, to African-Americans, to the, you know, to the detriment of, you know, uh, you know, white supremacy or white rule or, you know, or white women who sort of, you know, who are okay with, you know, crossing the racial line and having, you know, you know, multiracial babies with, uh, with people of color in particular. So, um, so, so definitely that, uh, that is part of the story in trying to sort of, sort of, you know, um, you know, radicalize young white men, uh, in, into sort of acting, you know, uh, in violent ways that look at you're losing your country, you're losing your white women, you're losing your society. So, you know, engage in, as you were describing earlier, uh, with that image of the, the baseball bat, engage in acts of racial violence, because it's on, that's the only way that we're going to be able to, you know, take our rightful place again um, in, in society. So, so, so it tends to be, at least in the more sort of political agitation form, it tends to be directed at, at, um, at least those kinds of images created by the far right. They're really targeting, you know, young white men in particular. Wow. Context of white supremacy, uh, the book, again, The Souls of White Jokes. Uh, our guest, uh, Dr. Raul Perez. Uh, let's see, we'll nab a few of our callers. Uh, no speechifying. Uh, if you have a question for our guest, Dr. Perez, that would be great. No speechifying. Just get to your question. Much obliged. Our caller at 5640-5640. Did you have a question for Dr. Perez? Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thank you, Gus, um, and welcome to the guest, Dr. Perez. Um, I wanted to know your your title, The Soul of White Jokes. Um, was that inspired by W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, book, The Soul of Black Folks? And uh, if so, um, were you inspired by or influenced by Dr. Dubois, Dr. Dubois uh, in your research as you studied and also as a sociology professor? Uh, yeah, that, thank you for that question. Absolutely. Um, the, the book is a play on Du Bois's work, um, uh, two of his, of his works in particular. So one is The Souls of Black Folk that, that most people are familiar with. But the other work that is also influenced by is uh, an essay that Du Bois wrote later um, called The Souls of White Folk. Um, and so in, in both of those works, Du Bois is really thinking through not only the experience of racism of people of color, uh, and especially of black people in, in white society, that would be the souls of, of black folk, um, but, but Du Bois is also interested in unpacking whiteness and what whiteness means and the contradictions of whiteness, which he really unpacks in his essay, um, The Soul of the White Folk. So, so absolutely, the work is in conversation with, uh, with Du Bois. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Much obliged. Uh, let's see. Before we nab our next caller, I thought this was really important. Important enough, I'm going to stop our, our call train. This is really early in the book. Uh, we got our um, homage to uh, Dr. Dubois. This is on page 12. Or, yeah, page 12. Got it right the first time. Chapter 1. 
the souls of white jokes. Uh, Dr. Perez, he had already mentioned how, hey, the system of white supremacy, many non-white people, we are co-opted. Even Richard Pryor, he apologized about saying Negra later on. We, oh my goodness, I forgot. Richard Pryor, we talked about Richard Pryor in the toy. Let me get Louisiana third time. Louisiana the toy, the movie, the toy, Richard Pryor with Jackie Gleason, comedy legend, where the joke, <laughs> he's in a mage dress serving fried chicken to white people, men and women, in Louisiana Richard Pryor the toy but you write in the book about this very thing how we get co-opted non-white people victims uh, oh man let me back up and even get it one more time Dr. Fegan a white racial frame Fegan suggests is often expressed through racist joking because such joking is a racial pleasure that works as an emotion-laden type of social glue that is rooted in maintaining notions of racial superiority and inferiority. This book explores several important ways that this kind of white racial frame emerges in the form of racist joking in different contexts. And the ways that racist humor underpinning such a racial frame is actively shaping and encouraging specific forms of social emotions, ideologies, and behaviors. It is worth pointing out that it is not only whites who are potentially aligned in this process as the use of racist humor by non-whites through self-deprecation or the ridicule of other non-whites can also work to orient non-whites in ways that reinforce a white racial frame, systemic racism and other forms of inequality. This was revealed in 2016, for instance, when Tom Engel the former chief of staff for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Kobe Bryant Day. That's the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department that was swapping photographs that on Kobe Bryant Day that was August 24. $31 million judgment for going to the bar and making jokes about Kobe Bryant's charred corpse and his daughter Gianna and the seven other people that were there that was the LA County Sheriff's Department was found to have forwarded dozens of racist sexist and homophobic jokes to staff while he was second in command in the Burbank Police Department in 2012 and 2013 I took my biology exam last Friday I was asked to name two things commonly found in cells apparently blacks and Mexicans were not the correct answers <laughs> one of numerous examples included in an independent investigation Angle who identifies as a Mexican American was hired to help reform the Burbank PD after various allegations of racism sexual harassment and police brutality were raised against the department yet he circulated jokes that mocked and dehumanized the very communities disproportionately impacted by police racial abuse and violence the shared use of racist humor among white and non-white officers as I discuss in chapter 4 can function to align white and non-white officers as colleagues within an organization complicit in systemic racial abuse in ways that further alienate the racialized targets of such humor very well said and important anything you would like to add Dr. Perez 
Uh, no, I, that's, I didn't even know I wrote that. So thanks, <laughs> thanks for reading that. Um, yeah, no, I, I think I think this is a serious problem in, in law enforcement, and, and I think it, it also really kind of shows the way that racist humor can be used not only to align, you know, you know, white people, you know, across ethnic lines, across class lines, in the way that historically racist humor uh, has been used. Um, but that today, in, in particular institutions, like law enforcement in particular, which again, the, the, you know, the cops have the, the legal authority to wield their batons at whoever they think needs to get their head busted, um, the kinds of jokes that cops are sharing, right, uh, across the, the racial line in these contexts, you know, potentially is creating solidarity among officers, right? The so-called thin blue line. One of the ways that that thin blue is being solidified for, for law enforcement, within law enforcement is through this emotional glue that's taking place through, through racist humor. So that's, that's one of the things that I really wanted to highlight in the book. You know, I will add, and, 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 and I, I did mention a little bit of this in, in the book, but this is, other stuff that, that I'm also beginning to think about and work on more closely is the fact that while that's happening, uh, in the case of Tom Angel, that's, that's very clear that that's happening. I mean, the other side of that story is that, you know, law enforcement, because it's in, in, in the broader social system, it's hostile to racialized communities because they're seen as more prone to criminality. That also means that racist humor is, continues to be a feature within law enforcement and, you know, that also means that you have the you know, officers of color in this context routinely being the targets of racist abuse to the point that either they go along with it and say, okay, we're going to be part of team, you know, thin, you know, blue line, and we're going to go along with it. Or as this is a more sort of, you know, silent feature of this phenomenon is that these officers often raise complaints against their, you know, human resources department or their, you know, their diversity, equity, inclusion wing of the, the department, the civil rights division, or they're full on like suing police departments. So this is something that's happening all over, across the country. I mean, quantifying this, I mean, I, I'm at the early stages of this research, but it's a, it's a significant problem that you have lawsuits all around the country officers of color are suing police departments because they're kind of, they've had it with the kind of, you know, quote unquote locker room talk that is happening at the station. A lot of that locker room talk is racist humor directed not only at racialized communities outside when they're on patrol, but at the racialized, you know, officers in the department uh, that is making being an officer of color very uh, intolerable. Um, so that lawsuits are happening all around the country. So officers of color are in this kind of, in this kind of rock in a hard place scenario. It's like you go along with the jokes if you want to survive here and if you want to have a career here. If not, then, you know, see yourself out. Um, and some of these officers, um, you know, are choosing not to go down without a fight in a sense. And they're, they're increasingly taking the legal route and suing their departments. Um, but, you know, it's rare that, that this becomes a much more public sort of issue. And, and this is kind of, you know, what I'm calling, you know, a kind of silent culture war. You know, we're hearing about, like, quiet quitting, you know, in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in the workplace these days. Um, 
But there's this kind of silent culture war that isn't really being discussed that's happening in institutions like law enforcement, where a number of officers of color are suing the department, are quietly complaining to their civil rights division or to their you know, complaints office that this is happening. And, you know, when they don't hear back or when nothing is addressed, their only real recourse is, you know, suing their department and, and, and trying to settle this matter privately. So, so, it's, so, it's, a, so it's a much deeper problem, um, I think, that, that needs closer, closer uh, examination. Let's see. We'll nab a caller. Uh, our caller at zero seven four seven zero seven four seven. Did you have a question for Doctor Raul Perez? Zero seven four seven. Greetings, Gus. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yep. Uh, uh, greetings, Doctor Perez. Um, my question in your research and study. Uh, have you looked at the use of um, jokes about black people or racist jokes by white children? Jokes about black people by, by white children? Uh, yeah. No, jokes uh, about black people racist that are done by white children. Yes, by white children. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, there is... Uh, yeah, there's some examples that I've come across. Um, you know, if I had more time to write uh, the book and add another chapter, one of the chapters was going to be looking at the context of of education, of schools, uh, where, you know, K through 12, but also, you know, uh, university, where this kind of behavior is it's happening in the everyday, right? So, you know, what, so like some of my first encounter with, with some, of this, some of this discourse, for instance, happened on the playground. You know, in, in elementary schools, uh, this is back in like the 1980s. Um, so, uh, and there's been, you know, uh, every now and then, some of these incidents, you know, make their way to, you know, local, you know, newspapers, and definitely there's, you know, there's examples where where this is happening as well, you know, in in high schools and elementary schools, you know, kids getting bullied. You know, kids getting bullied on the playground, kids getting bullied, bullied, you know, uh, in the bus on their way home, you know, kids that are bused. And a lot of that bullying is often happening through racist harassment, racist joking, racist name calling, racist slurs that are happening on playgrounds. They're happening in, you know, in lunchrooms. So definitely this is something that's also happening, you know, among children. And of course, children are only reflecting what they are seeing, you know, in the society, what they're seeing in their households, what they're hearing in their households, what they hear the older siblings or kids on the playground use. So, so definitely, this, this is a problem as well. Thank you, Gus. Yeah, thank you. Our caller, 2979, 2979. Did you have a question for Dr. Raul Perez? You with us? 2979, are you with us? Not here. Or maybe you're just listening. Maybe they're listening. Much obliged if you're 
just listening uh, let's see or if you are if you did have a question uh, we're not hearing you I don't know if your audio might be malfunctioning maybe you can hang up and dial in if you're just listening much obliged our caller uh, 2262 2262 did you have a question for Dr. Perez you should be with us Got it. Two two six two. Did you have a Hello, question? Napier. Oh, there we go. Yes, sir. We got you. Yeah. Um, can you come back to me, Gus? I'm currently still working. Uh, like, is that okay, corner? Oh yeah, <laughs> still on the plantation. Understood, sir. Let's see. Uh, our caller at. Uh, I guess you're on the Skype line. Caller on the Skype line. Did you have a question for Doctor Perez? Oh, hi, Gus. Um, hi, Doctor. My question is, Doctor, do you see white supremacy as a system, as a local global system? Do I see it as a local and a global system? Uh, definitely, it's a it's a it's a local and a and a global system, and you know it plays out in you know perhaps in slightly different ways depending on the sort of global context, right? You know, white supremacy looks a little bit different in the United States versus, say, in Latin America. Uh, but there's also some similarities, and that similarity would be the whiteness and white supremacy. So that if you look at, you know, the way resources and, you know, power, you know, is distributed in Latin America, it tends to be distributed sort of in, in a way where whiteness or lighter sort of skin tones, you know, what is sometimes called colorism sort of is playing out. But, but even the phenomenon of colorism is, is also rooted in in white supremacy. So so definitely, you know, white supremacy is a is a local and a global global structure. Um, and then the, the the laws, the rules, the policies, the culture, the jokes are going to reflect that. Thank you. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, George. Uh, let's see. Our color. I'll give him a little bit more time. Uh, our caller, retired firefighter in Florida. Retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Dr. Perez? You should be with us. Greetings, everyone. Uh, greetings to the guests. Uh, I heard uh, you, sir, uh, agree with the host definition of global of the global system of racist white supremacy, but at the same time, you stated that uh, you use the term people of color are more and in, most informed uh, about the system of racist white supremacy. My question is, uh, based on your uh, answers, why don't you think the problem has been solved? Why hasn't the problem of white supremacy? Problem of racism, white supremacy. Why haven't it been? Why, why haven't it been solved? Why hasn't it been solved? That's that's a, that's a that's a that's a huge question. That's uh, I think there's uh, definitely a lot of a lot of layers to it. I mean, I think there's different there's different reasons. I mean, I think here as a society, we're kind of seeing in real time one of the reasons that we can't solve a problem that we're not even allowed to have a conversation about, right? So if we look closely at what's happening in state, you know, governments all around the country, right, the idea that, you know, uh, tools 
frameworks, history for understanding racism and white supremacy, like this phrase, critical race theory, right? Um, that, you know, in certain state governments, like they're outright saying you cannot teach this in the classroom. So if there's content that you can't teach, right, if there's a manufacturing of ignorance of how the society came to be, it's kind of hard to solve a problem that you're not even supposed to be aware of, that you can't talk about, that you can't, you know, uh, uh, sort of recognize and then think about potential solutions. So I think the problem is, is, is a deep one, right? And this is only today that this is happening in this kind of very intentional way, or at least in a way that we're sort of recognizing. But the default in a country like the United States has been to just not recognize it, right? It's not even in the history books. Don't even talk about this. So, 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 you know, that, that's, you know, the manufacturing of ignorance when it comes to racism and white supremacy, um, I think has been going on for a long time. We're beginning to recognize that problem, but we're seeing that as we're recognizing the problem, there's a doubling down on manufacturing the ignorance and saying, no, you cannot teach this in your curriculum, K-12, in the college classroom. We're just not going to teach this because this is, this is doing social harm. It's, it's dividing us more than whatever the alternative people imagine it might be, um, but which is basically just let's keep the status quo, let's keep white supremacy intact, Let's not let's not um, get ahead of ourselves in thinking that this is something that we should you know try to try to solve as, as you mentioned. So I don't know if that answers the question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, Rob, I'm, I'm thinking you given you given your answer to the uh, the question. Uh, the next the last question that I have is, uh, could you give us the dynamics of what it what it is to make a joke what what are the the building dynamics that that makes something that's called a joke yeah the dynamics that make something a joke okay so so if we look at the mechanics of of humor uh i mean there's a few different series a few different sort of ways to think about what makes something funny uh you know one one perspective uh uh suggests that, you know, it's it's when you pair sort of, you know, inc- incongruous things, right? Like, so you're, you're telling a story and then the punchline is supposed to go in a different direction from the story. That's what's called incongruity theory. So part of what, what makes something funny is the surprising sort of punchline that's being revealed. So every joke has a setup and has a punchline. So that's what makes a joke different than another form of communication. Um, you know, then there's another theory that says, well, part of what makes something funny is that, you know, when when it's tached, when it's touching on something that is potentially taboo in the society, something that is maybe frowned upon, something that's not allowed in polite society or in civil society, you know, those kinds of things often can be ideal candidates for humor, right? So in a society where sex or sexuality are repressed, they're not supposed to talk about those things in public. Well, those become ideal candidates for humor, right? So someone like, you know, Sigmund Freud looked at, you know, sex humor in Victorian, you know, Europe. You know, why was it so popular? So so things that are taboo in society become candidates for humor. So racism is taboo. Racism now can be a source of pleasure and humor. And then a third popular theory for what makes something 
funny is that idea of schadenfreude that we find funny in sort of the misery of, of others, right? So what's called sometimes the, super, the superiority theory of humor. And this would connect to sort of the, the reality that ridicule and mockery is also a form of humor, right? So laughing at someone that laugh, rather than laughing with someone, right? So when, when we combine all those things, the idea that, you know, a punchline is kind of revealing something that you might not expect, that a source of humor comes from things that are taboo in the society, uh, and the fact that humor is also stems from ridiculing or mocking groups or individuals that we see or perceive as inferior. You know, you combine those elements and that begins to reveal what a society might find funny. And of course, humor, the other thing about humor is that it's, it's connected and it's reflecting part of the culture. So not every culture is going to have the same exact sense of humor. And if we look at human cultures and civilizations, you know, across human history, you know, we might find different kinds of humor. So in, in cultures and civilizations, say, in, you know, pre-colonial societies, you know, racist, white supremacist humor would not exist really in those societies because there is no reference point for, you know, a white supremacy, um, you know, to, to exist or structure that society. So, you know, white racist humor would not exist in a society that is not structured by white racism. Okay. Yeah, I would mention lastly is that I, I heard I heard uh, the term racism and white supremacy several times. And uh, I basically think it's much more logical to state racism, white supremacy, because both are the same is thing. Is this a question? That's all. Thank you. Yeah. No speechifying. Uh, the caller who dialed in two two six two 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 six two, you should be with us. Two two six two. Did you have a question? I think he said he was one of the Yes. Yes, Yes, sir. Sorry about that. Thank you so much for coming back to me. Uh, yes. Greetings to all the, the listeners and greetings to Scott and greetings to Dr. Perez. Thank you, sir, for taking some time out to speak with us. Um, yeah. My first question would be, as far as that, um, the comedy school, could you give us the tuition for something like that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, I mean, inflation has probably made it much more expensive. I mean, when I was going to the school, uh, I forgot. I, I I did the math, and it was the equivalent of college tuition, basically at like the University of California at the time. So it was. These are like you know five, five to six week sessions. I mean, different schools have different sort of time frames, and back then it was. I think it was maybe like $400 per session, $400 per five week session. So, and this is just for one, for one class. So, uh, and then you have students who signed up multiple times. So if you're, if you're doing, you know, multiple, take go every month for a year, you know, uh, you know, it's four or 500 bucks per session. That's, you know, just for, for one class, that's, you know, $6,000 or so 
you know, uh, for the year. Um, so, uh, well, actually, maybe more than that. Sorry, my math is a little off right now. It's been a long day. Um, but you're, you're looking at thousands of dollars, right, if you're doing this on, you know, on, on the regular. And, and most students were enrolling for more than one session, right? If you want to sort of, you know, be, uh, at least from, from the perspective of the comedy school, if you want to be a working comic, you're going to have a faster route to being a performer if you're going to school versus if you're doing it on your own. And the way that this would be advertised by the instructor, because obviously it was also a revenue-making thing for the instructor. It's like, you know, you can learn how to, how to build an engine by tinkering with a car by yourself, you know, and an engine and taking it apart and trying to figure out. Or if you go to a trade school, they're going to learn how to, you know, how to build and, and rebuild an engine much faster. So that's kind of how they, they kind of uh, advertise and kind of the pitch that they were telling for the students. But, yeah, I think it was maybe, yeah, $500, four to $500 or so per, per six-week course. I imagine that's a lot more expensive today, you know, a decade after I did that work. Thank you so much, sir, for your response. Um, my second question sure. is, as far as the instructor, um, Ted, uh, did this person uh, ever use uh, nigger when it came to his own uh, comedy? Ah, that's a good question. I have to kind of jog my memory here. Um, I don't remember if yes or no. I, I do remember that uh, the part of what was sort of made explicit in the course was so his, his partner at the time was a uh, was a black woman, and uh, and she was also a she a former student, but then became an instructor herself as well. So 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 the instructor was white, and his partner was a black female. And did he did he? I, I don't remember. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I and and the timing of when I did the course was also an interesting one. As I mentioned, this was right on the heels of the the sort of fiasco at the at the um uh at the laugh factory um and um so i I don't you know i I could imagine that there was kind of hyper vigilance about you know using racial slurs you know so kind of freely in the in the context and I think if I remember correctly, like I think he 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 might have had a policy that said you know no using explicit racial slurs like the n word I think um so you know but you know was that a new feature of the class uh you know uh in in light of that context you know perhaps but um i mean that that's a good question i'd have to look at my notes over again to see whether or not that was the case thank you sir for your response i do appreciate it um yeah, my next you. question will be yes sir so questions about uh when you heard jokes uh about black people in those courses um, do you think that some of those jokes, even now from any, uh, any white um, uh, comedian, do you think there's truth to any jokes? Is there truth to any jokes? I mean, there's certainly... Any in, of those jokes about black people? In, in, in that context. I mean, there's certainly the, the kind of cliche expression, it's funny because it's, it's true, right? Um, and in the class, a lot of times... The, especially when it was racialized, you know, people themselves, you know, black, Latino, Asian, the instructor would ask them to engage in, you know, kind of racial stereotypes and jokes about their own group. Um, 
And some of those, some of the students in the class, some of the students of color, for instance, they would draw on their own lived experience for humor. So some of the jokes that were shared came from things that happened to them or people that they knew or an experience that happened to them. Um, but, but in other contexts, it was completely made up. So it, it wasn't, you know, it was a fictional kind of story or sort of, you know, fictional scenario or, or you know, it was, it was, you know, try to get to the, try to get to the punchline. So, so in some contexts, it was based on sort of lived experience. In some contexts, it wasn't. For the white students, there was always that sort of, sort of more hesitation on the part of the instructor to give them just license to go there. Um, and I do remember one time, and I think I talk about that, this in that particular, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, article that, that I wrote uh, several years ago. It was, a, it was an older white student who wanted to do some sort of race-based humor. I think, I don't remember if that was, a, no, I think that was about Asian American. Um, and the instructor told him to, to, to cut those jokes from his act. He said, you know, coming from you, you kind of sound kind of racist. You know, the audience might not buy it. So there was more of a policing for the white students engaging in racial stereotypes or the use of racist jokes. Um, and there was more license given to people of color, right? So going back to the, to the issue of self-deprecation, right? It, you know, it, allowing the people of color, you know, to, to be much more explicit, much more vulgar, much more kind of in your face with the racist uh, jokes, you know, at that point, you don't need the white person to tell these jokes because the people of color can, you know, they're, they're doing, they're doing it for white people. Um, in a sense, so so I, I saw that was a much more common phenomenon in the in the comedy classes. Thank you, sir. Um, my yeah, next you. question would be, um, yes, sir. So uh, you use the term Latino. Um, I've always heard this term. I'm very curious about. It. I'm very ignorant to what it actually means. Do you actually have a definition to what that is? And could you give that to us if you do? So sorry. So what, what was the term? Yeah, the the, the term Latino. Do you oh, have a Latino, definition? Latino. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is basically sort of uh, the idea that peoples of, you know, who were you know colonized by, sort of you know Latin countries and from Europe, right? Spain, you know, in particular, but also you know Portugal. Um, you know, and and that the sort of the those countries that were colonized by so-called Latin, you know, uh, European countries, their sort of their descendants, uh, and then the new peoples that emerged in in the colonial Americas, right, was this new category of people that were created because of colonization, because of you know the sort of rape of indigenous women was this new category, Latino. And what was Latino? Latino was this sort of mixture of the indigenous population, the European settling pop, uh, population, and then the slaves that were forcibly brought from Africa. So this idea of Latino was this mixture of peoples, of, you know, of the native peoples of the region, the Europeans from these so-called Latin sort of countries, and then the Africans who were sort of brought by force. And then this new, this new kind of people, this new category of people, you know, Latinos, and that's a more recent term that's that's been used, you know, 
and you have other terms, you know, you know, mulatto or mestizo or you know, mix like this this notion of that implies a mixture, right? You're not a sort of pure, you know, in the sort of in the old school like racist sort of you know uh, you know hierarchy of peoples. You know, you weren't any one thing that you were you were a mixture of these things. And so Latinos are just the people that emerged out of the colonization of uh, the Americas, um, you know, from Mexico on on downward. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure if that um, answers that question. Yes, yes. Very briefly, would you include uh, the Caribbean, who were colonized by quote unquote Spain, and also the Philippines? Uh, so th- those are those are good questions. Um, there's, I mean, there's ongoing debate about uh, uh, about some of that, especially when it comes to Filipinos. Are Filipinos Latinos? You know, they were also colonized by Spain. There's, you know, Catholicism played a role there. That's a little bit more sort of ambiguous sort of one. There's still ongoing discussion about that. Uh, when it comes to the Caribbean, uh, definitely, you know, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, you know, consider themselves to be, quote-unquote, uh, Latinos or they're often lumped into the category Latino, uh, but say others like, you know, Jamaicans, for instance, often are not considered Latinos because, again, the, the, that was a you know, British colony. That, that was not a Spanish or, or, or Portuguese um, colony, and they don't, you know, don't speak Spanish there. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that's what I mean, that la, la, term Latino, it, it implies some connection back to Europe, but some connection especially back to uh, back to either Portugal uh, or or Spain, and the term Latino is a little bit different than the term Hispanic because Hispanic is more specific to to Spain, Hispanic, Hispanola, the old sort of Spanish colonies and territories implies a, a specific connection to to uh, to the Spanish Empire. So Hispanic is different than Latino because Latino includes Brazil, for instance. Um, but uh, Hispanic would not include Brazil or Brazilians. So th- that would be one way to, to, to see the, the distinction between Hispanic and Latino. And yes, certain people in the Caribbean w- would fall under the category. Latin Cubans would be another one, for instance. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that answers the question there. I don't know if I heard a definition that actually makes sense to me, but... Okay. And my final question will be, are you familiar with the caricature of Menea penguins? Sorry, so what was the what was the term? Uh the caricature Menea penguin. Oh Menea Menea penguin. Yeah, yes. Yes, this is a uh, Latin American blackface caricature. Uh yeah, prominent in Mexico and in other places. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you guys for taking my call. Coming on. Thank you. Oh, I learned something. I didn't know the last one. Wow. Learned something there. Wow. We. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Much, yeah. Ob- yeah. much obliged to our, uh, our caller. Uh, I've learned quite a bit in reading, uh, the souls of white jokes. One of many truly tasteless jokes too we're not taking your whole evening dr perez uh just truly taste like two i didn't say one like 
I don't even know how many of these there are. I went and looked online and was amazed also because I've been talking about racist jokes for 13 years and just now heard of these for listeners. Oh my God. This is from the black chapter. This is tasteless jokes too. What's the definition of worthless? A seven foot two inch black with a small cock who can't play basketball. <laughs> Did you hear the Harlem High School cheer? Barbecue, watermelon, Cadillac car. We're not as dumb as you think we is. <laughs> thought it was going to be R and they, they can't black people don't do conjugation okay uh, I'll just stop right there because I didn't even know about these books back to the souls of white jokes where I got this book from you mentioned that this was a New York Times bestseller that sold many copies you had authors who were mad these no count freaking racist joke books are taking up all the space man what's going on they had to fix a new section because of all of this tackiness Dr. Perez, he goes on to write, there's nothing implicit about searching for nigger jokes. He doesn't say nigger, but I'm putting it back in. Oh, and he gives a, man, I should have said that. If you want to explain that, (laughs) that's fine too, but he does say that at the very beginning, since he's not a black person, he does not have nigger spelled out in the book. I always say it. I am designated black, but I never sanitize, so I'm putting it back in. Nigger jokes, Stevenson, David Witts asserts bluntly, Pointing to the sharp increase in Google searches for this phrase every time African-Americans are in the news. Google searches for the slur average about 7 million per year with about the same frequency as terms like economist or margarine. Man, we have been so in lockstep. I heard this report on NPR where they talked about this. The other term that they included just to show you the level of frequency nigger is searched on about the same level of frequency as one more time Kobe Bryant day the Los Angeles flipping Lakers 20% of searches for the slur include the term joke internet searches for jokes employing the term spiked during Obama's elections and they accounted for 17 times more searches than for kike jokes, gook jokes, spick jokes, chink jokes, and fag jokes combined. Black and I'm proud. We talked about this with Dr. Fegan just that, I mean... <laughs> What does it mean to be black in a system of white supremacy? Can you talk about the level of intensity uh, in all of this white schadenfreude and uh, racial animus directed at black people specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really rooted in anti-blackness and and the fact that anti-blackness is, you know, central to the development of you know, white supremacy, especially in a country like the United States. I mean, in, in many ways, the United States became, became the epicenter for, you know, white supremacy, especially because of the fact that, you know, the, the plantation economy of, you know, the early colonial America 
was so essential for the making of the modern world, right? Uh, an industrial revolution would have never happened without the cheap cotton provided by slave labor in the American South, right? So historians are having sort of, you know, a sort of new sort of, you know, resurgence in, in just exploring that history and linking that history of early colonial America, the plantation economy, uh, with the growth of, um, you know, of, of, of capitalism, you know, this idea of what's called racial capitalism, you know, you know uh, more recently what people are describing, is the fact that anti-blackness and the, the exploitation of black labor was, was key, was central to the formation of what became essentially the United States um, and what became, you know, global, global capitalism. Um, and of course, the, the sort of that, that sort of relationship of blackness to the United States, blackness to capitalism, blackness to whiteness, this made it so that blackness was this kind of ever-present feature of the making of the modern world. But it was also like what, what was in the sort of, in, in the, in sort of on the side that kept reminding sort of white Western society of the horror that it took to create it, right? So the fear, the anxiety of sort of, you know, of the of black population rebelling, you know, revolting, you know, seeking revenge, created a tremendous amount of sort of paranoia and fear in, in white society, uh, especially during the era of, of slavery, but up and through the civil rights period, up into, you know, these protests that happened, you know, in 2020, uh, following George Floyd. So that, you know, again, one of your callers earlier was asking, you know, what, what makes something funny or, you know, you know or how do we think about what a, what a joke is? You know, one of the, you know, one of the, the, the dominant theories about humor is the way that humor is connected to, you know, to, to what is taboo, but also to what gives us kind of social anxiety or fear, right? And one of the ways that we try to mitigate fear or anxiety is often through humor. And so if we think about it in this kind, you know, I'm not a sort of, you know, uh, psychoanalyst in, in by any means, but if, if, we, if we kind of here infer a little bit on what Freud was trying to reveal with thinking about how humor is connected to the sort of the, 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 the social sort of anxieties of a society, you know, in a white supremacist society, you know, anti-blackness has created a certain level of anxiety and fear, right? Because, you know, it's it's there as a reminder of, you know, of the sort of brutal nature of 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 you know of, of white supremacy of, of what it what it took to build white society, um, and so why why Schadenfreude then it, it very much is then connected to that sort of that white fear that white anxiety that is connected to this idea of white supremacy. Um, and so I think we see it in the kind of in the fact that racist humor, especially racist humor against blacks, is this kind of almost seemingly this, this ever present feature of of uh, of white society that is still structured by white supremacy um, and and uh, and, uh, uh, and a structure that that humor continues to reflect it right. And you see it across different institutions. You see it across different time periods. You know, blackface minstrelsy was the most prominent form 
and the most, you know, some historians say it's the first form of popular culture that is uniquely, quote unquote, American, right? And again, the, the, the humor was, what was the humor of blackface? To basically suggest that, you know, black people are not only inferior, but they're objects of ridicule. And so it was easier to laugh at blackness uh, versus to think about what it means to subjugate them or they're conspiring for their freedom, they're rebelling, they're, you know, and, and, and these kinds of things that sort of, again, are connected and rooted to sort of the fear of white society that, you know, how do we, how do we take hold of this? So, so white schadenfreude is, um, is important here to, to, to connect. Enjoying the misering, misery, excuse me, misery and suffering of black people. Hmm. Anywho, oh my gosh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you call a black millionaire physicist? Nigger. <laughs> Truly tasteless. This was a bestseller of New York Times, can you believe it? Uh, if, uh, I go back just really quick in the in the learning to make racism funny in the colorblind era. You write, uh, this is you're talking about the demographics of the folks are mostly white and all that. You said I did not encounter any self-disclosed LGBT students, although the frequency with which male students and male instructors, mostly white male, jokingly refer to each other as gay, fag, cocksucker and homo may have contributed to this fact. The environment was heavily hetero male, white hetero male it would seem, in both numbers and content, the ease and frequency with which derisive sex and gay jokes were shared was in sharp contrast with the cautious and strategic way race jokes were made, demonstrating that race-based jokes were more difficult to perform in public there are about a billion things that I could say about just that one paragraph even going back to our question about who's more informed about racism because wow one of the thing or one thing that I found fascinating you cannot be ignorant about racism and be in the comedy class as a white person Ted is gonna whoa 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 you cannot be saying chink now come on do some they are given all the instructions and I read this and I said man if this has happened at the comedy club there have to be other environments where white people get instructions on how to practice racism but that's not even why I read this I read, although that oh my god what in the why I read that was all of this I thought is really homoerotic like this is white this is mostly white males who are doing all this cocksucker fag, homo, isn't this mostly white males saying this to other white males? Well, this was, I mean, it was, it was the men of color, too, engaging in this kind of behavior as well, but like, as you mentioned, in that particular class, uh, it was it was predominantly white men. Uh, but, yeah, this, and this was a way in which the men were bonding, right? So we talk about white schadenfreude and how, you know, you can bond through, through racist humor, uh, there was a lot of bonding happening through homophobic humor as well, right? So men were bonding, uh, especially well through homophobic humor. You know, the use of racial, uh, sorry, of, uh, homophobic slurs were thrown around casually, right? Like nobody batted an eye 
you know, with, with these being homophobic slurs in this context, they were wielded much more freely um, and without sort of looking over your shoulder, who's listening, you know, am I going to get in trouble? You know, is somebody going to call me homophobic? Like, there wasn't the same sort of preoccupation, right, as there was with, like, you know, I'm going to be careful with using a particular racial slur or how I'm going to, you know, refer to this other group. Uh, there was there was much more sort of, you know, um, you know, fear of, of, of using and trading in racist commentary much more freely, uh, especially in, in uh, you know, during the, um, you know, during the breaks is really where I captured a lot of this as well. Like, you, know, you know, people are taking, you know, they're on break mode, people will get a drink, they're kind of hanging out, they're just kind of shooting the shit, and uh, they're just, you know, um, you're making friends. Um, and in those contexts, I, I definitely saw how, how that kind of humor and commentary was deployed very, very easily. The the numbers that you gave was twenty white males, nine non white males, five Latino so called, three black males, one Asian male, one uh half or whatever you want to call it. Uh nine total non white males, twenty white males, but to me the homoeroticism of all of the like, wow. Uh there's nobody in the world at any point in my life where I would be calling them a cocksucker and all of this and this is my friend. <laughs> like uh woo. Uh, even especially I read that mostly white environment lots of white males and then I think back as I said you got this image in the souls of white jokes with a white man who is literally in urine don't be a hunkle, a humble honky where he's being robbed by a black guy and he literally is wetting himself it says be a mighty whitey with the white guy with the bat and then later on in your book even when you're talking about the Attica riots they got some of the guards are making the black inmates drink urine like that just that homo the delectable negro talked about that the delectable negro human consumption and homo eroticism in US slave culture racist jokes and that homo eroticism are together a big part. oh my the joke that i just read what was the joke that i just read uh what's the definition of worthless a seven foot two inch black with a small cock who can't play basketball that right i mean racist joke all of this fixation on a black male penis did you hear any jokes about man come on give me one uh Dr. Perez, did you hear any jokes about black phallus in the in the comedy situation? That that's a good question. I, I'd have to again jog my memory, think about. Uh, I, I'm sure I'm sure it was there. I'm trying to think right now of a specific example, but uh, you know, I can't think of of one off the top of my head. But certainly it was. You know, I mean, you just have to look at comedy today. I mean, the the comedy school was just kind of. You know, it was like the training grounds for, you know, for for what you see on a Netflix special in these other places. And you know, if you if you you know pop on a, you know, uh, uh, a comedy show today, it's like you know you're, you're going to encounter that. Um, I think you know quite quite easily. So so definitely, it's uh, it's been it's historically and today, it's sort of a part of a part of that particular culture industry. So, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Much of my, we had two stragglers. I'm super sorry for 
folks being late and lagful with their questions, but they are interested. Hopefully they will all get the book, The Souls of White Jokes. Uh, Victor okay. in, New, in New Jersey, did you have a question for Dr. Uh, Perez? Victor in New Jersey. Victim, sorry. Victim in New Jersey. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. So, sorry for my uh, tardiness. Um, yeah, uh, Professor. So, um, do you, is there any other group? Because I know that, like, a lot of people like to say that, you know, oh, you know, everybody's been through some kind of uh, trauma, every group, but have you um, found any parallels to, um, you know, terrorism of a group and jokes the way that you see um, with terrorism and jokes as it relates to uh, black people? Yeah, that's a a fascinating question. Um, At least here in the American context, I have not. And, and, and one thing that I've been kind of thinking about and sort of, you know, look, trying to trying to find sort of maybe evidence for, and, and this would require further for the research, you know, would be, and I was kind of surprised in a sense that there wasn't the same level of say anti, you know, uh, you know, anti-native or anti-indigenous humor that is part of the kind of social you know, and culture of, you know, racist humor in, in the United States. Um, you know, of course you see it in, you know, and I think it was, this was in a sense kind of maybe revived. I'm not kind of an expert on Native American scholarship, but um, some of this is definitely present in like these Western films about, you know, cowboys and Indians and, you know, and kind of stories and narratives about, you know, how the West was won and stuff like that. Um, uh, but in terms of, in terms of, just everyday joking and, and, and um, as Gus is pointing out, these, these volumes of books, these truly cases joke books that, you know, became, you know, bestsellers in the 1980s, by the way. That's the other thing, though, to put it in context, right, Chuck? This was the 1980s. This was a decade and a half after the Civil Rights Movement. These joke books become, you know, uh, sort of bestsellers. And, 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 you know, they're selling millions of copies, this, this author. Um, who used the pseudonym? Um, but you know, one thing that's em- that that's missing from these joke books, for instance, is the fact you don't really see Native American humor, and you don't see jokes targeting indigenous people or natives. So, so for me, that that's kind of an interesting comparison study there. That you know, if, if we look at the history of say the United States, you know, which are the groups that have been sort of most subjugated at the hands of sort of white racists institutions and military and law enforcement and violence, you know, the, the two that immediately come to mind would be, you know, you know blacks who have brought here from, from Africa and then the indigenous population who was essentially wiped out to make way for settler colonialism. Um, but, but, I, but perhaps it's because of the fact that the native was kind of, you know, pushed, you know, out of sort of immediate view you know, this is, again, this is just kind of me thinking out loud here. I need to do the research. But the fact that, in a sense, natives are being forcibly removed from, from view, from the periphery, while, while in the case of, of Blacks, because they were essential to the economy, like the fact that they were on plantations, they were working in white people's homes, they were, they were still present in the social structure. They were going to be a part of the American project, in a sense, uh, but they were, you know, they were going to be forced into that role. Whereas the native population, it's like we, 
you're on something we want, which is your land. We don't want you, we want your land. So, so in that sense, there's something there I would need to think more deeply about um, and, and, and try to find, you know, some, some, uh, some data and, 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 and really research it more carefully. But it's something that I have been thinking about, not as systematically, but that would be the group that I would say in the U.S. context would, would be made perhaps a candidate for that, for that particular question. Okay, thank you. Thanks for answering the question. They do have sure, thank a you. lot of Native American jokes. That's one I need to research myself, but they do. I had not. They do have a lot of those. Yeah. Uh, what do yeah. they call a woman in the army? A whack, W-A-C. What do they call hmm. a black woman in the army? A whackoon. <laughs> That is one of the best that I've seen this week. Uh, what can you get a wakun? The anyway, the person who dialed in two nine 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 two nine 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 wakun wakun. <laughs> Did you have a question for Doctor Perez? I do, uh, Doctor Perez. Can you share with us a racist joke that you think says more about white people than it says about black people? Oh wow, that's that's a that's a great question. You know, uh, you know, one that I remember hearing, and and I heard this joke not from white people. I heard this from, from you know, from uh, other you know Mexican Americans when I was growing up, and it was a joke that I'm assuming they probably got from like maybe a far right website on the on the internet because like these jokes that that Gus is sharing, a lot of these are in these collections of books that. You know, um, especially in the 1990s, they kind of had a second life uh, on the internet, especially on far right websites. And there's, there's this one really kind of grotesque joke that I remember hearing from when I was a teenager, and, and I saw it again when I was doing research uh, for this book and for other work. And it was a joke that says something like, um, "You know, how do you keep a black person out of your out of your backyard?" And the punchline was, you hang one in your front yard. And, I mean, this, this is a joke, right? It was, and I, I don't remember if it's in these uh, truly tasteless uh, joke books, guys, but there are other jokes in those books that allude to lynching. Um, but I remember listening, hearing this joke from... Oh, can you hear me? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, sorry, because one of my earbuds just uh, the battery died. I remember hearing this joke um, from, you know, from, from, you know, other, other, other Latinos, you know, as a teenager. Um, and again, these jokes were gaining popularity in the 1990s. And I talk about this in the book a little bit because white supremacist organizations were very much seeing that they had an opportunity to kind of, you know, uh, inject these kind of jokes into the public arena uh, via the World Wide Web. And so they were putting these jokes all over the Internet. Um, and sure enough, when I was doing this kind of research you know, over the last decade, that particular joke, I found it again on a far-right website. Um, and um, and, and, a, and a place... Oops. Oh, sorry, my, my, uh, my earbuds just ran out of battery. So... Um, 
I'm not sure if you caught that last thing. But I think a joke like that really does reveal, right? Like, what is it revealing? It's revealing, uh, again, going to this idea of white schadenfreude, and then say, finding pleasure, not just in the pain and misery of others, but finding pleasure in perhaps the most racist and brutal act, you know, in American history, the, you know, the lynching of a black body. I mean, that's, you know, and, and finding that amusing. I mean, so, so something there is, I think, very revealing and, and sort of deeply wrong about um, what's happening in these so-called jokes. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, I'd heard that one before. I'd heard that one before uh, when I first started uh, hearing racist jokes or in seriously studying them. That was one of the first jokes that I heard. And the other one that I heard with, let me see. What do an apple and President Obama have in common? They both look good hanging from a tree. That was the other lynching, or at least two that I heard very early on when I recognized like, ooh, we should be paying attention to these jokes that (laughs) that's hilarious. Hmm. Yeah, and, and, and that 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 Obama joke, Gus, that, that, that's just a recycled joke that, you know, that, that was used during the Obama period with the word Obama, but that joke has existed for much longer than that. And the, the previous version was, instead of Obama, it just, said, it just said black person or it said black or it said the N-word, right? Um, and and so, so these racist jokes have been recycled, right, over the generations. That's the other thing that I kind of try to point out in the book. They're often recycled. They've been recycled across platforms. These jokes that only used to exist in far-right white supremacist spaces, they also made their way into these joke books. So, so the author of the Truly Tasteless Jokes, you know, she, she uh, it was a, a white woman actually speaking about race and gender and, you know, and how these, you know, these, these materials get shared. There's a white woman who began to collect these jokes in like the late 1970s, early 1980s, and put together a book that she titled Truly Tasteless Jokes, and she gave herself a, a sort of fake name. Uh, Blanche Knot was her name, which is like, I think, French for like a white, like a tight knot, or like kind of like, you know, like you're, you're kind of like knuckle white or something like that was the, was the metaphor, um, as a way to sort of, you know, uh, it was a response, in a sense, to the political correctness sort of debates and, you know, stuff that was happening in the 1980s and 90s. And, you know, it was no longer okay or polite to tell racist jokes in public settings, but you can consume them in private. And then, you know, so she was collecting these jokes, but then she also, like, began to solicit these jokes in, like, local newspapers and in putting out ads saying, hey, if you have a good racist joke, send it my way, and I might include it in my next volume. So you can imagine, you know, sort of, you know, white supremacist types who far right seeing this and sending it. But again, as kind of I'm trying to make the point in the book, it wasn't just far right white supremacists that are consuming and engaging these jokes. Um, it was also just, you know, kind of everyday sort of white folk who thought that these jokes were funny so they make it onto the pages of these books. Now these books are selling millions of copies to all kinds of people across the country. So it's kind of, it's, it's now it's sort of getting the word out on these jokes to a much larger audience. Um, and of course, the far right takes advantage of that and recycles many of those same jokes 
and then puts them online on their own websites as a way to draw people in. It's like, hey, if you like racist jokes, you know, let me tell you what else you might like. We have some other things for you. So they were also used as propaganda tools by by the far right. So so we see here, you know, how the racist jokes can be used for racist aims, both by explicit racists with an agenda, but also just by sort of everyday sort of white society that puts these out there. And then and then you have people of color sort of engaging in these, making use of them, finding joy and fun in them as well. So that, again, this is another way in which white supremacy gets perpetuated and to the point that people of color consume and share these these kinds of, you know, cultural sort of items as well. Oh, my God. The souls of white jokes. Uh, that fella, 2979, I'm just making sure we didn't miss someone who did have a question. You were just listening, right? 2979, did you have a question? 2979. Uh, can we heard? Oh, we can hear you. Yes, yes, we can hear you. Oh, great. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, my my first question, I uh, thank you, Dr. Perez, for being yep. here. Uh, my first question is, uh, what is the purpose of a racist joke? What is the purpose of a racist joke? I mean, I think they could have more than one. I don't think it's only one specific sort of purpose. I mean, I think part of what people are doing when they're sharing the racist joke is, you know, they're trying to sort of create a context of play, of fun, of, you know, of, you know, kind of testing the waters, you know, are these people that I can sort of trust? Are these people that I can joke about and talk about these kinds of things with, without, you know, them breathing down my neck? So it's, you know, you're, you're, you're engaging in sort of so in a social interaction, right? And, you know, joke telling is often a way that we sort of forge friendships. We forge, you know, sort of, a, you know, uh, relations with, with people at work, with other people that we encounter. Um, so I think that's part of what's happening with these jokes. But then when the jokes are, say, racist or sexist or homophobic, not only are you engaging in trying to create sort of a, some kind of bond or social relationship, but then it's around a particular world view. So the racist joke is trying to sort of indicate, hey, you know, uh, what do you think about this other group over here? Isn't it funny that, you know, this or that? And then, and now what you're sharing is not just a sort of friendship or a relationship or an experience, but you're also sharing value judgments about particular groups. You're, you're sharing sort of ideas and ideologies. You're, you're, you're sharing the idea that, you know, maybe, you know, you both agree that, yeah, political correctness or whatever, it's, it's, a, it's a whole bunch of garbage. So, so you're sharing a, a lot more. You're sharing worldviews in the moment that you're sharing an experience. And so these things can happen simultaneously. They can happen at the same time, right? So that's why part of what I argue in the book is that, you know, racist humor can be, at the same time, can be pro-social and anti-social. Pro-social meaning that you're, 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 you're developing a relationship closer with the person that you're engaging in the humor with, but it's antisocial in the sense that you're creating alienation uh, uh, from the people that you're dehumanizing with a particular kind of humor. And those things can happen at the same time. Uh, thank you. Um, very interesting response. 
my, uh, my second question is, uh, being under a system of white supremacy, if a white person makes a, so a person classified as white makes a racist joke, should I suspect that white person of being a racist? I, that's that's that a great logical? question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's a good question. I mean, I think uh, context matters for sure, right? Like the, con the context is is important. Uh, you know, what is the sort of what is the you know what is the nature of the joke? You know, is it being told in a particular social circumstance or setting? You know, is it told in response because of the person of color told this person, you know, a racist joke too? Is uh, you know, is the person trying to insult you know the uh, the the person? So so there is something to be said about context here, and, and I, I don't want to sort of allude or, or sort of to the fact that these racist jokes are not told across color lines in ways that what people think they're doing is creating friendships, you know, because that also tends to happen too, right? People, you know, black people, people of color, white people in these kind of multiracial spaces, sometimes they try to test the waters for, you know, whether or not sort of friendships can be built or made. Sometimes racist humor is playing a role in that, right? Because you're showing that, hey, you know, you know, we have, we can take, we can take the heat or we can take these jokes and, you know, we're cool, right? But at the same time, friendships can end because a racist joke that was told was perceived as going too far. So, so this is kind of like, you know, like a double-edged sword in a sense, right? When it comes to racist humor. In, in micro settings, in friend, in peer relationships, friend relationships, sometimes they're used to create you know, friendship or solidarity in a sense, right? But at the same time, they can be used in a way that negatively impacts that friendship and the friendship falls falls apart, right? So, I mean, if somebody was telling you a racist joke that you don't know, just, a you know, sort of a, a colleague, someone you don't have much interaction with or any shared history with, certainly that's a problem. But if, but if it's somebody that you have a lot of shared experience with, the the context might be sort of worth considering more 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 fully there um and and certainly i think that's that's in that sort of a this more sort of ambiguous space that certainly i think needs a lot more uh, attention especially in small sort of group settings and and friendship settings i would say um more context may be needed i'm not sure if that answers just to re respond, yes, thank you for your response. Uh, well, the, the, you said context a lot. The context, you know, is that we're under a global system of racism, white supremacy, and that isn't like it, it, it doesn't turn off. So yeah. is it ever okay to say a racist joke? Or is it ever okay? Is it ever okay to tell a racist joke? I mean, I think that's a, that's a great question. I mean... Never, never. I, 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 that's <laughs> that's a, that's a that's a. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, if we're thinking about it in terms of the impact of racism and how it can be perpetuated with racist humor, right? We could say, okay, maybe we shouldn't do that, right? At the same time, uh, I mean, Gus has been sharing racist jokes across the uh, our conversation here over the last, you know, few hours, and Gus is 
sharing these racist jokes, I think, with the intention of trying to sort of, you know, reveal what these racist jokes mean in the context of the conversation we're having, which is thinking more deeply about racist jokes, right? So now is Gus telling them to sort of advance uh, racist ideology by telling these jokes? I don't think so. I mean, we'd have to ask Gus what the motivation is behind the sharing of the jokes. Uh, but I think that would also qualify as an instance where, wait a minute, we're telling these jokes, we're sharing these jokes in the context of trying to understand what it is they are and what it is that they're doing. So if we say we can't tell them in any context, then that really doesn't give the opportunity to explore them more deeply. I'm not sure if that answers the question. Let's see. Um, I, I suspect that maybe I wasn't um, clear, um, but when, when I was speaking about the racist joke, I was talking about people classified as white telling racist mm-hmm. jokes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I classify myself as a victim of white supremacy. I've heard Gus also classify himself. And so mm-hmm. would, would it be accurate to say that, the, the, that people classified as white created uh, create, promote racist jokes, that they are the creators of re- racist jokes? Uh, yeah, I mean, if we go back to the history and the historical development of racist humor, it starts as a genre. It starts in the era of slavery. It starts with a genre like blackface minstrelsy. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, previous guest Joe Fagan on the show would definitely say that yeah that's that's um that's the historical reality of how these jokes were created okay so so then for like logically i guess what would it be accurate to say that usually when i guess non-white people engage in telling these jokes they, they may be just mimicking or repeating what white people have said yeah, yeah. Racist joke. Go ahead. Oh, uh, I was just, yeah. The is it accurate to say you know non-white people are just mimicking or repeating the non the the racist jokes white people have created or told? Yeah. So 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 yeah. So sociologist Joe Fagan would say that you know he calls it the the white racial frame, the, the way in which a sort of a, a racial worldview that was created sort of, you know, by, by whites or via whiteness that creates these stereotypes or images um, and, and so forth, and that those can be also articulated by people of color, right? So in the era of blackface minstrelsy, you know, especially in sort of the latter half of it, um, you know, you had, you had black blackface entertainers who were allowed to be a part of blackface minstrelsy and perform but they had to perform according to the white norms of what blackface minstrelsy was. So they had to put on the blackface makeup too. They had to perform white constructions of blackness uh, in blackface, right? So that, you know, so that black blackface performers were also engaging in self-deprecation uh, and they were expected to because that was the only way that they could perform on that blackface um, minstrel stage. So definitely people of color, black people included, all people of color, can engage in sort of white constructions of 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 racism and, and white supremacy um, as well. Okay. Uh, my my last question, and, I, and then I'll, I'll thank you thank you for taking my call and answering my question. Uh, 
for your book, who who's your target audience? I'm not sure if that question was asked. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, who's my target audience? I mean, I'm I'm hoping. I mean, with the title, right? I'm hoping that you know people can kind of catch the kind of play on words there, and so definitely people who are familiar with the works of someone like W.E.B. You know, Du Bois and and sort of the work that he did to really have us think more deeply about racism and white supremacy and these kinds of things. Um, you know, but I, I think the target audience is, is really anybody who's interested in what it is that, on the one hand, racist humor is, but how racist humor is connected, you know, to racism and to white supremacy um, and, 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 you know, have an interest in understanding that relationship more more closely. So, so I'm hoping, you know, anybody with an interest in, in understanding and, and, and seeking to fight and challenge racism and white supremacy would, would take a look at the book. Cool. Any other questions? I think, oh, he said that was his last question. He said that was his last question. Um, okay. Oh, he had okay, the audacity. Cool. Man, since he put it that way, yes. Our final question I will have to write a review or come do a five-minute stand-up routine uh, at your way. Matter of fact, you all made me think about it for a moment. When I worked at the comedy club, the only time I can even think of that was close to a joke about white people, and it's not even that, they played some sort of hip-hop or whatever with Nigra in it, of course, and there happened to be white people present, like two of them or so, out of a whole sold-out room. And they knew all the words to the rap song. For whatever reason, this became a point of fascination. So they stopped the whole show, put the spotlight on this white guy who is singing all of the lyrics to whatever insert rap song. And so part comes up where Negra is going to be said and he self-censors what you said. You got to think like, whoa, Trent, <laughs> even though he's not even on stage, he doesn't say it. And the crowd went wild. They, oh! He's the coolest white boy ever. And I mean, it's like hundreds of black people, all the staff, all these, every, oh, he's the coolest white boy ever. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the, about the closest thing I can think of to a white joke that I heard in working at a black comedy club for well over a year. Jokes about black people, billions and billions and billions and billions and billions. My last question the great Chris Rock. I got this asking a white guest about racist jokes. He said The Office. TV show that was on for 10 years, even through the Obama years. The whole show is a racist joke. The second episode in the series, Diversity, and a show that was on for 10 years, considered one of the best TV shows of the last 25 years, easily. The second episode they did is called Diversity. They just took this, or they had major con. I think they did. I think they took it off the streaming services because of this segment, Chris Rock. This can be where we can end that. Get your thoughts on this. One of the most popular television shows easily of the last quarter century. This is episode number two in the series, The Office. How come Chris Rock can do a routine and everybody finds it hilarious and groundbreaking and then I go and do the exact same routine, same comedic timing, and people file a complaint to corporate? 
Is it because I'm white and Chris is black? So we're going to reenact this with a more positive outcome. I will play the Chris Rock guy. I would like to see someone else pull this off. Well, let's have someone who wasn't involved in the reenactment. Okay, uh, I will play guy listening. Great, guy listening. Okay, uh, anyone else remember? I remember. Great. You're the Chris Rock guy, and you're guy listening. Okay. Basically, there are two types of black people, and black people are actually more racist because they hate the other type of black people. See, every time the one type wants to have a good time, then the other type comes in and makes a real mess. I'm, okay, I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. He's he, he's ruined. He's butchering it. I, I'm. Could you just let me? Every time, every time, black people want to have a good time, some ignorant ass. Oh, I take care of my kids. Wait, wait, wait. They always want that's credit for something they're supposed to do. What you want, cookie? second episode in a series that was on for 10 years that is episode number two and again i think they just took that out of some of the streaming services for what you just heard i just use it because white people love chris rock i just sit back and ask why and i mean yes yes include the oscars too white people love Chris Rock why is that that's where we can end with that context of that segment even the Oscars what do you think about white people's love of Chris Rock Dr. Perez well, oh man that, that's a whole other show in and of itself um, yeah I mean I, I think you know uh, uh, I'll, I'll try not to take too long here but I, it, it, I mean Rock himself is an interesting figure and certainly there's been other, you know, these black superstars, right? These, um, you know, these black superstar celebrity entertainers in the world of comedy, you know, uh, or Richard Pryor, or Dave Chappelle, right? And and part of what I think they have in common is the way that they can articulate a sort of, in some cases, a white point of view that white entertainers or, you know, white public might not be able to do so themselves. Um, and so Chris Rock in particular, right? And I've read some of his, his interviews earlier on where he talks about that particular joke that, that, that the, this episode of The Office is kind of playing on, which is the, um, the, the, a show that it, uh, I think it was in his comedy special, Bring the Pain, um, is, was an HBO special and it was also a comedy album where, you know, at that point, Chris Rock had mentioned how he was a struggling actor. He was a struggling actor, struggling comedian. He hadn't really made it in sort of in in um, in Hollywood. He was playing kind of you know side roles. He he wasn't he wasn't the headliner. And you know he was you know he was questioning whether or not he should be, continue to do comedy. And he said he's going to do a comedy special and he's going to kind of pull a hail mary. He, he, that he has this joke. He has this routine where he's, he's going to do it, and, you know, he doesn't know what's going to happen. But he knew that he was playing with dynamite, right? And it's this joke, the black people versus N-words. And when he performed this joke, again, we have to put that in context, too. That was in the mid-1990s. Mid-1990s, Bill Clinton is the president. Mid-1990s is when Clinton says he's going to, you know, reform or end welfare as we know it. Mid-1990s is where... 
you know, three decades after the civil rights movement, people are saying we're ready to move beyond, you know, enough of this, you know, you know, white people are the root of black people's ills, you know, black people have to, you know, get their shit together. And so here you have Chris Rock essentially saying that in a joke. You know, he's saying, look at, you know, uh, white people, we know you're fed up with black people. Uh, black people are fed up with, you know, black people too, or at least this segment of the black population. So, so Rock, in a sense, put out there with this joke what the way white society was already feeling, right? The way white society was feeling about sort of, you know, the sort of black underclass already, but also the way that maybe perhaps, you know, a, a, a large segment of the black middle class felt about, you know, black people too, or at least the black underclass, right? The fact that, you know, you had, you know, socially mobile, you know, upwardly mobile middle class, you know, black community that felt that, you know, part of what's keeping them behind is the fact that you have this kind of lower class black community who, you know, who who, who is really the face of their problems and, and they're getting, you know, they're getting attacked for it, you know, when, when they feel they, they shouldn't. So there's a lot of layers to this joke, right, that, that Chris Rock is giving. On the one hand, it's, he's a mouthpiece, in a sense, for white society. He's a mouthpiece for not just the, the white sort of racist point of view, uh, overtly, but for the white liberal point of view, right? White liberals loved Chris Rock because he was saying what white liberals couldn't say themselves, Right. Um, and of course, if you look at that at that comedy special, you know when it's being filmed, it's predominantly a black audience, right? And this is something that comedy producers sort of were really aware of a strategy that they needed to do to appease a public audience beyond the comedy stage, right? If you're going to get other people to to laugh at the racist joke context is important and who is laughing immediately after the joke is important. So if Chris Rock were to tell this joke and the audience was full of white people and HBO would have put this special on its network, uh, that would have probably ended Chris Rock's career possibly, right? He, he wouldn't have become the superstar that he did, but put a, put this same routine in front of a predominantly black audience and predominantly black audience is, you know, this is, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of superstar of a performance and show and black people in the audience are having a time of their life. And then you show the same show on HBO, you know, to white audiences all around the country. Or, you know, I, I remember watching this show, too, when I was, you know, in, in, in a teenager in the 90s and we watched it via, you know, illegal cable, um, I remember. Um, and... Uh, you know, all of a sudden it's okay. It's okay to laugh at the joke. It's okay to go along with the joke because black people are having a good time. So then it kind of gives a pass and like, oh, and, and so that's the, that's the whole point of this joke in, in this episode in The Office that the character, Michael, I think is his name, you know, he feels that, hey, look, at if Chris Rock is telling this joke, there's not a problem because, you know, it's, it's, it's a good joke. It's a good joke and, you know, it's funny and black people think it's funny. So why can't I say it? Is it because I'm white? So there's this now this, you know, it's also, it's playing on a lot of different layers. It's the reverse racism too. And, 
uh, the political correctness, and you know, I've, these are conversations that have been happening in the culture more broadly. Um, so, so you know, I, I think there's a lot there to to unpack, as I mentioned, you know, and 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 definitely a number of authors and writers and, and scholars have have grappled with this uh, with this with this very performance by Chris Rock in terms of thinking what what is why was it so resonant in the culture, right? Um, this joke that Chris Rock told um, to a black audience, but then was put on a show like uh, on a network like HBO, which is predominantly consumed by white audiences. So, so there's a lot of layers there to, to unpack for sure. But I think there's, there's the racial component to that joke. There's the class component to that joke. And of course, putting it into historical context, right? A few decades after the civil rights movement, um, and also all of the debates that are happening over political correctness and, you know, and uh, affirmative action, et cetera, et cetera, and welfare and so forth. And then you have the making of a, of a joke that's going to become more than a joke. It becomes this kind of this, this, this cultural epicenter for a lot of what's happening in the society at the time. I'm not sure if that answers the question. Oh, that answers the question about as much as one could do in the given amount of time. You know what else was a part of that uh, context, at least temporally? Uh, good old Mark G.E.D. Furman, or Rental James Simpson. In <laughs> fact, I think his O.J. routine is very shortly after the who's more racist, niggers, and all that, and then he gets to Rental James. Like, uh, whoa. I did. The yeah. book we have chatted about, my goodness, uh, could spend a whole nother three hours talking about it. Uh, the Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. And in fact, I can tell listeners, man, that in and of itself is rare. You do not get very many books with white supremacy in the title. I just pointed that out before and bam, there it is again. Like, wow. Lots of interesting material. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, learned lots, got lots of racist jokes, and he hung out, answered everybody's questions. What can I say? Oh, him at least a review. I will be looking forward to your, uh, you said the research on the enforcement, it was non-white enforcement officers who, all these racist jokes, they're being abused, and then what to do about it? They can't report it, nobody does anything, and all the rest of it. If that's future research, man, we will stay tuned. Dr. Raul Perez, much obliged. Uh, really enjoyed it. Outstanding research, sir. Thank you so much, Gus. I really appreciate the time and, yeah, the space to really just think through these things more deeply. Uh, yes, thanks so much with the show, uh, for having me on your show and a really great show that, that you have there. So definitely you're going to be, I'm going to be tuning in more regularly. Humor is not context-free. Ugh. Got to use that forever. The Souls of White Jokes. Dr. Raul Perez. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Get a copy of the book. It's not mammoth. It's not a dictionary. It's an easy summer read or end of summer read or whatever. If you got days to go out to the park, the beach, lake, whatever it is, man, you will get some racist jokes and you will learn a lot about white supremacy racism. The Souls of White Jokes. Much obliged, Dr. Perez. Thanks so much. For sure. Have a great evening. Context of white supremacy. That line again, humor is not 
context free. I normally I think it's so important uh let listeners, you know, get a quick thought in, you know, what you thought about the material and did you learn anything, blah blah blah, that sort of thing. One, I can only say, man, we have talked about this. If we have any folks, if you are a new listener, maybe you're like Dr. Perez, first time, you know, hearing the content, whatever. We have talked about racist jokes for the full 13 years. There are very few subjects where I can say we came, what is the the metaphor, out of the gate, out of the starting blocks, talking about racist jokes. And I think part of that was because in the interim, I said we got kicked off the air 2008 into 2008 oh it was 2007 we didn't even make it we got kicked off the air at the end of 2007 we were off the air from 2007 until february 2009 so basically 14 months or so and in that time that was one of gus's area of study racist jokes check them out see what they're talking about all of that and uh really investigate because i didn't pay attention to that before I didn't I didn't hang I didn't have white friends or what have you. At least I can say that I wasn't one of those who was doing the self-deprecating humor uh, and hanging out with white people. And, oh, yeah, let me tell you some nigger jokes and blah, blah, blah. And, oh, I hate black people. And, oh, let's watch Chris. That, you know, was not me. I was still a victim. Cheetos and all. But I just wasn't doing that. So I didn't really hear racist jokes until started being more serious. We got kicked off the air started talking to white people right that was it now i'm thinking about how this became an area of focus we were talking to white people and specifically talking to younger white people and i say younger like uh teens late teens <laughs> uh, not high school anything well basically yeah like 17 18 17 18 high school seniors put it that way 17 18 between like 17 and 25 maybe even 29 or so younger white people in that kind of age group uh underclass or excuse me uh undergraduates at the college university of washington we were talking to a lot there and in seattle in general and racist jokes i mean boy that's the age where they are real every age group but i mean really the younger white people they love a racist funny they started telling me racist jokes and i started hearing them enough i started picking up on it and then i started asking them and the clinch i remember we at the time back of the bus myself uh we had non-white teacher assistants that we talked to they had mr fuller's book they invited us to come and talk to their class about racism this is when during the interim cows isn't on the air so we go like almost all white people we go talk to them we start i think i asked them about racist jokes they tell me a few in fact they did the same trifling thing it was, let's say, we'll say 30 just for now. It's like 30 white students in the class. We'll say it's a total of like 35 staff and, you know, everybody, visitors, no count, Gus T, blah, 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 35, 40 people. Uh, I would ask racist jokes and nobody say anything. Class was over. I had white students. Some of them, they would come afterwards and talk. And they said, oh, yeah, I can't think of a racist joke. We talked about Pulp Fiction. I think some of this got recorded. Legendary. Anyway, they came up after it was over. I was like, oh, yeah. I do remember some racist jokes and they started telling and that I started noticing then they would tell me a racist joke when they took they said uh, he said uh, a white guy comes up to house of a white person he says hey what is that thing 
in the front lawn that's wrapped in a bow and pink stockings and it's got tinsel and blue ribbons all wrapped around it what is that and the white guy who owns the house comes out he said that's my nigger and I'll do what I want with him I think it was it sorry that's my nigger and I'll do what I want with it so they started telling me these. that's where I heard the Obama and the Apple one boom boom They when I started sharing these racist jokes back and every time I mean every time 10 times out of 9 that's the way I meant to say it it would be oh boom 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 Obama Apple oh yeah I heard that one what's the thing in my front lawn oh yeah I heard that one tycoon I think I said that one oh what is it a waist 7 inch black guy short penis can't play oh yeah I heard that one every time it didn't matter what the joke was oh yeah I heard that one All right, and it wasn't just oh yeah it was the oh yeah like I've heard that one about 8 billion times type of oh yeah 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 I heard that yeah 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 I heard that that was the response that I got every time with every white person I this was what it was no contest you all can waste time talking about there are white people who are not racist that right there when I was talking exactly what Mr. Fuller said 15 16 17 18 every one of them they heard every racist joke I named yep 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 I didn't get one oh no no not once you all can waste time victims guaranteed qualified you can waste time with there are some white people who are not racist I submit no such person exists period same thing I said before evidence does not support that you're not ever going to be able to get evidence this white person has not now has not ever nor will they practice white supremacy racism no evidence for that so what does it mean to be white I said hey this is the one now can a white person be ignorant about racism and again the same thing that I said with Dr. Perez hey if you're ignorant about racism you miss all of these jokes meaning what what Wakun? what I don't I don't get it what what do you call a billionaire physicist nigger what's a nigger I don't that's how you would be all day long when all of this is happening all over the world every age group you don't know what racism white supremacy is huh what huh I've never seen a white person who was huh what huh I've never bumped into that white person ever and we haven't even met that white person on the cows because they don't say I've never heard a racist joke the hundreds of white people that we've talked to they normally say oh I don't want to share that's what they say (laughs) they don't say oh I've never heard of it oh god no I don't they just think of an excuse not to share them with us 
what does it mean to be white? But we've been talking about this for 13 years. Gus T's been writing even about this. Gus T got paid to write about racist jokes. Posted the article seven years ago. I forget this is even one where I can truthfully say I have forgotten how much work I've done on racist jokes specifically to say, oh, dang, I actually got paid to write about racist jokes. And included the Abraham Lincoln. I didn't I hope that didn't come off as, you know, me trying to, you know, show him up or anything like that. Just sharing information. I thought it was important. Hopefully, you know, he'll check it out because I I learned a lot uh, from his book. Thought it was great. But that portion from the great historian, Laron Bennett, Jr., black male journalist, writer, historian, victim of white supremacy, too. But I mean, hey, that's what we're trying to correct. But everybody should read Forced into Glory biography on Abraham Lincoln the whole book is about racist jokes and I, that's what I read that's why I took all that time to read that's I thought of that book before I even started flipping pages of his book saying oh man we gotta have Abraham Lincoln as a racist joke teller I mean hey if you're gonna know anything about the great emancipator and what it means to be white like forever ever Abraham Lincoln loves darky jokes and they got records of his darky jokes the great Laron Bennett Jr. forced into glory they got a three hour talk of him on C-SPAN talking about that biography I've posted it you should also check that out alrighty I'll give a shout out to the person who shared this book man they shared, I think it was within the last three weeks, they posted this book on god-awful social media. I hate social media for a billion reasons. They said, hey, Gus, haven't you been talking about racist jokes like forever? You check this out. So I check, hmm, souls of white jokes, hmm, Dubois homage, and all the rest of it. I look at the name. Now, I looked at the name. I said, oh, Raul Perez. This looks like a non-white person. Mm, white guest only policy. And that's what I told the person, too. I went, but I said, I will at least go check out the book. I mean, hey, this is my subject matter. I at least got to go, you know, read. So I go start flipping. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. I said, well, I'll at least inquire. Let's at least see, like, this would be one if we're going to break the rule, like racist jokes. Like, my gosh, you've been talking about that forever. Somebody writes a book about racist jokes with white supremacy in the title. Man, you at least got to think about it, right? right on take that I would have had way more uh, enjoyment if it had been someone classified as white like oh man oh I would have been overjoyed but either way constructive I will say at the beginning I was very bothered for me at least if I'm talking to anybody white or non-white if I ask them a question and they're not answering my question they're doing a lot of talking and they don't answer my question it bothers me, especially if I feel like for whatever reason, if they have a different agenda or whatever the case may be, like answer the question. I'm not accustomed to talking to people where you have to beg them. Can you please answer the question? Can you please answer the question and not take so much time to get to the response? But I feel like once we got through that, I enjoyed the second part of the uh, exchange a lot more. And beyond all of that, like, hey, what can I say? We hung out for three hours, answered everybody's questions. 
answered all of my questions? Yeah. Uh, anywho, uh, I will see if folks have any thoughts, uh, what they heard from the guest. I will. Let me see. I'll read one more racist joke. And I'll read the line that I read about the volume, because I think that is super important in terms of the volume of racist jokes that black people or that individuals classified as black are targeted with as opposed to everybody else. Uh, so we'll do the racist joke first, and then we'll get that. So the racist joke. <sighs> oh, I messed. I got moved off of it. There we go. Okay. This is from ta- Truly Tasteless Jokes 2, compiled by a white woman who also became a billionaire, I bet, with all these books. What do you get when you cross a black and a groundhog? Six more weeks of basketball season. Now, I even had to take a moment to ponder on that. And then I said, oh, 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 I got, I got, I got. So black people, we're not humans. What is it? Remember, one more time. It's NAACP. They said it was niggers, apes, alligators, coons, and possums. I guess you can add groundhog there if they had a G. So they're not people. Groundhog Day, six more weeks of winter, right? If they see their shadow, they call black people shadows. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like, these jokes explain so much about white supremacy racism, what it is, how it works, how you are supposed to function as a white person, how you are to see individuals who are not white especially those classified as black black and a groundhog six more weeks of basketball the one below that we heard I almost played it I don't know how many platforms they have man I could have done an hour of sound clips of us talking to white people about racist jokes, just their response. Share a racist joke. What do you think about racist joke? Mark Furman is just one. I could have taken the one with Jane Hill, 2012. She gave us this racist joke exactly. How do you know Adam and Eve weren't black? Ever tried to take a rib from a nigra? Now, in the book, they got black man, but that's the way she gave it to us. Ever try to take a rib from a nigra? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the line that I said one more time about the enormous differential between the so-called racist jokes uh, that are targeting black people as opposed to everybody else. Uh, let's see. This is page 137 there we go Uh, there's there's nothing implicit about searching for nigger jokes he doesn't have or he just says n-word but I'm putting it back in nigger jokes Stevens Davidowitz asserts bluntly pointing to the sharp increase in Google searches for this phrase every time African Americans are in the news even that every time black people are in the news 
nigger searches increase. <laughs> okay. Uh, Google searches for the slur average about 7 million per year with about the same frequency as terms like economist, margarine, Lakers, Kobe Bryant day. 20% of searches for the slur include the term joke. Internet searches for jokes employing the term spike during Obama's elections and they accounted for 17 times more searches than for kike, gook, spick, chink, and fag jokes combined. Black and proud, affirmed in my negritude. Folks who are with us, if you have any uh, thoughts, what you heard, it will give uh, like 10 minutes and then we'll wrap up. I know it's late for people on the East Coast and such. Uh, thoughts from what they heard from our guest, Dr. Perez. Any uh, quick thoughts? Wakun. Uh, greetings, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, just one quick comment. Um, in my observations, I don't believe victims of racism can tell can tell racist jokes. Uh, that that to me is is the same as saying uh, victims of racism can practice racism. Uh, that's my only comment. Thank thank you for the for the broadcast. Hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, hmm. So I know we had a listener who said that they were even trying to think of a different term altogether because uh, these are not jokes in quotes to, to something else to call them in total when white people do it uh, to just emphasize that these are acts of racism. And then we can think of something totally else for non-white people, too, uh, that this is just a part of their victimization and um Oh, it could even classify as racial masochism. Yikes. Word guide. If anybody has their word guide, you could just mm-hmm. read that term and see if that applies. Racial masochism. Does that apply? Y'all can let us know on that one. Uh, any other folks, quick comments they need to get in? Yeah, Gus. Um, you, I know you always talk about timing. And um, again, like this ain't, you know, VGQ, this ain't me. Um, you know, um, going after any other victim. But uh, you asked a question about Chris Rock. And if, if I'm not mistaken, it was just like, you know, why do white people like his jokes? And just today, you know, he, he, you know, he went viral. It says uh, Chris, Chris Rock reveals he declined to offer, he declined to offer the host next New Year, I mean, next uh, Oscars. Uh, reason being, he says, returning to the Oscars will be like asking Nicole Brown Simpson to go back to the restaurant where she left her eyeglasses before being killed. Now, you talk about metaphors that don't make any sense, but that right there is why they like Chris Rock. It is O.J. Simpson's world we are just hanging out renting space a rental jane now that i mean wow Matt, we had a lot of metaphors today but that's in the jokes but i mean wow what a metaphor 
victim in New Jersey. The great Chris Rock. Parental James. Uh, other folks? Have you heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, thank you. I just wanted to point out uh, when he made the comments about Richard Pryor and how he said he kind of uh, talked to white people and gave them insight to what was going on in the black side of town. If I remember correctly, um, he grew up in a brothel and his dad was a white John. Is that correct? I'm not too sure, but uh, I think they were very aware of what was going on in the black side of town. <laughs> white people are not ignorant about their niggers. And I know he did grow up in a brothel. We t- it's uh, June of 2011, the end of the month. We did a whole program on Richard Pryor. We talked about his films, his book, his life. Yes, he did grow up in a brothel. And in fact, we talked about a segment where he said that black people. Now, you want to talk about his jokes about white people? If I had known he was going to pull that, I'd have had the sound clip where Richard Pryor, his joke about white people is white people would not tolerate the ways that they treat black people and the example he gives is talking about where he grew up he says he remembers or he says no think if a black guy came up to the house child and white child answers the door where's your mama at I want her to you know play with my penis kiss on my penis I'm you know trying to pretty it up a little bit but that's the joke about white people now he told many of them but that's one I remember now that is substantially different than the jokes about negras and a cowbell Uh, other folks commentary quickly briefly um I looked up racial masochism oh let's hear it let's hear it okay it says use this term to apply to a condition in which a non-white person has become so accustomed to being extremely abused by white supremacists that he or she seeks, expects, and welcomes, that's underlined, the personal attention given to him or her through more abuse. Mm. I, I think it does fit the definition. It says something else, too. It's pretty fast. Can I read that? Please. Non-white males and females, when in the presence of white people, choosing to interact with white people and or with each other in a manner that can best be described as pitiful, primitive, stupid, and or silly. That's it. Money produce justice.com. Incidentally, now if you want another one about how I feel about criticism, now I haven't had my word guide cracked open in a year. I don't care about your criticisms. Just read and stop saying honorary white on the program. Produce justice.com. That other folks have commentary they need to share. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I I listened. I wasn't exactly sure how to 
put this into a question during the broadcast, but I just want to mention Paul Mooney. Um, I just figured like he he deserved a a shout out during this, and that that was it. Does a lot of talking bad about black people too. Uh, other folks, commentary they need to share. Take two more. Uh, I was, I I was just thinking about the uh, the answers that uh, the guest gives to uh, the question about who's the most familiar about the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, what do you think about adding in to the question? Uh, Less com- who is who is the as as far as solving the problem it, somehow add that into the question. Uh, what do you think about that? I don't think white people are interested in solving the problem. So and black people, you know, obviously we're not informed. So that's not really at least my focus isn't there because I already know that white people are not interested in solving the problem. And thus far, no one has demonstrated expertise at solving the problem. So, you know, Hey, that's, that's all hypothetical. Um, my focus is, and even I'll say for today, we had a listener who said, how about asking if white supremacists are more informed as opposed to non-white people that right there is why I do not, uh, disaggregate individuals classified as white. Cause I just think that leads to, more confusion because then they say that some of the white people who practice racism do so because they're ignorant and they just do so blindly and then you got some white people who are not racist at all and all of this so that's why I don't uh, engage in any of that incidentally that exchange when I asked that question he talked for about three or four minutes that's why I said the early part of the interview felt like I was asking questions and he wasn't answering them and he was talking for a long time like he had his own agenda about what he wanted to talk about and I just I, I don't think anybody is going to enjoy that sort of exchange where I ask a question and you just don't answer it and talk about whatever you want to talk about for a long time uh, and he talked for about three or four minutes and I interjected and I said hey you're not really answering the question and he said well it's not really a correct question and he reframed it it's like hey well if that's the case you should have just said that immediately as opposed to talking for a long time and not answering my question. That's why I said, like, at first I was not feeling, enjoying the conversation at all. But be that as it may, um, yeah, I don't think white people are trying to solve the problem. So I just stick to who is more informed about white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works. Nobody has demonstrated expertise about solving it, and white people are not trying to. I, I agree. I agree. Uh, Hang on one second. Uh, the Did any other thing... folks have a commentary that they wanted to get in? We're only taking one more person. Everybody good? Oh, we got everybody. Can I say something? Let's hear it. So I missed the part at the beginning where the person gives their racial classification. I came in maybe 30 minutes after the program had started. And all I heard was, you know, the conversation and the way he was answering, or oh, I thought he was a white person. I'm not surprised. Uh, I was thinking about the buckets of words because I just said, like, as I think that 
that earlier before I started taking callers before you all you know got in I was asking questions and he was taking a long time using a lot of words to answer the question sometimes he wasn't even answering the question it was diverting very far away from uh, the question he was talking about the far right like when I asked about women and he deviated to the far right like yeah I had I had the same sense I did of course ask him if he was non-white at the beginning and I asked uh, are you a non-white person yes and then he went and gave specifics Chicano all that where he grew up what that means blah 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 um, so we got the details about that and then the caller asked him about Latino later on which was interesting because he said there's even debate about who is so called Latino and all of that depending on where they are and who colonized them which group of white people came in and terrorized them that right there the fact that he said that that's not even something that you have consensus on not that I'm surprised about but like psh, another reason the classifications are white non-white we're not popping over and adding and latino and hispanic and all this white non-white no other craziness as mr like i said you want to stick with mr what mr fuller has white supremacist white non-white great but i mean all that other stuff confusion i was even sitting there stunned like what <laughs> they keep talking about some of these people in in the philippines like there's debate about whether they're latino or not and all this like oh my god like non-white let's just stick to that then we can move forward about who we're talking about here um much obliged for all the folks who dialed in we have been chatting about this for 13 years so i don't know maybe we have cultivated if anything i would say folks should pay attention we talk about all the time mr fuller and so many others uh deception it's so hard to get individuals classified as white to be honest and buckets of words and all that. It's so hard to get them to be honest. Racist jokes. That is one of the few occasions when honesty. Wakum. That was the one. What do you call a, a female in the army is a whack. And what do you call a black female? A wakum. See now even that. To get that joke you gotta know. Negras, apes, alligators, coons, and possums. You got to know that. That joke doesn't make any sense. Coon, what? What? Coon? What coon? What coon? What? A black female in the army is a. What is it? A coon. I don't. That's what you would be doing all day long if you are classified as white. No. No. Uh, let's see. Give you one more and then we can ride. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, oh, my Lord. Let me give you two on the way out. Let me give you two on the way out. My God. Uh, the chapter even the chapters that they got in these books are amazing uh but black anyway so give me the last two on the way out uh <laughs> got of control uh what's black and shines in the dark oakland <laughs> The Negras Robin, you know. Uh, let's see. Uh, what? 
Why did God create the orgasm? The delectable Negro human consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. Why did God create the orgasm? So blacks would know when to stop screwing. Anyway, oh my, let's see. Why do blacks why do blacks wear white gloves so they don't bite off the ends of their fingers when they're eating Tootsie Rolls? That's delectable Negro too, I feel like. Anyway, we could talk about racist jokes forever. Uh the souls of white jokes. Doctor Raul Perez check out the book it is fascinating and it does deconstruct the racist jokes there's a little bit of the the racial narrowing kind of shrinking it to right wingers and far right sometimes but he does come back consistently this is widespread behavior amongst individuals classified as white and again (sighs) searches for jokes employing the term nigra spiked during Obama's elections and they accounted for 17 times more searches than for kike gook spick chink and fag jokes combined system of white supremacy racism you are designated classified as black back of the bus bottom of the boat extra terrorism for you and we are gonna laugh and enjoy abusing the nigra social media much obliged I would say their handle specifically but you know Uh, much obliged the person uh, who shared reading is more important than watching television the great Chris Rock Uh, uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy we need to be sober racist hunters on the loose oh we should be back Uh, middle you just have to check it's way too late you have to check uh, social media and all of that middle of the week dates times for the programs minimum will be here for the book club on Thursday and all the rest of the programs creator remind us to be patient with other victims of white supremacy racism they've probably been the butt of racist jokes all day remind us to be patient with ourselves help us demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out no name calling because that's all that is all of that coon this and all the rest of it that is just racist racial masochism cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim brother you're a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning.
Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>